Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Today, we have a jam-packed episode with Peter Victor and David Gardner. Justin, are you as excited as I am to hear from these two very exciting men? Absolutely. And it's interesting to see in the United States now that the 2012 election is over, how quick the conversation has changed into that of the fiscal cliff and how the United States is going to manage all of its commitments given that the economy no longer works the same way everyone thought it did before now that the economy has undergone a major phase change. And so people like Peter Victor have been in policy discussions for a very long time saying, look, we don't need growth to provide full employment. We don't need growth to deal with social equity. We can find other ways to do that. And so as an ecological economist, he created a model and wrote a book about it called Managing Without Growth in order to show people that growth wasn't required in order to reach full employment and to deal with the problems in society. And so that's what we're going to be talking about on the first half of our episode today. That's right, Justin. And for many of you extra environmentalist listeners who have been up on the extra environmentalist website in the recent months, you may have seen Peter Victor listed there as a movie. We actually met with Peter Victor in Montreal during the degrowth conference where we had a chance to sit down and talk to him. And also at the Montreal degrowth conference, we met Dave Gardner, who made the film Growth Busters. And we're going to be talking with Dave on the second half of our show because not only did he make a film about the problems with continual economic growth, but he ran for office in Colorado Springs, Colorado, one of the most conservative areas in the U.S., talking about how we can't keep growing forever and how we can't base our economic system on infinite growth. And so we're going to be discussing with him some of the challenges about having a realistic dialogue about economic growth and how difficult it is to run for office when talking about realistic and meaningful adaptations to the problems we're facing in our economy today. So that's our episode for today. We're going to be talking with Peter about ecological economics and Dave about his new movie, Growth Busters. So let's jump in and talk about those interesting topics.
We recently had Steve Keen on our show, and we talked with him about a lot of the problems with neoclassical economics. But one of the things that we found in reading through his book, Debunking Economics, was that he talks a lot about alternative ways of approaching economics, but he doesn't mention ecological economics at all. So we've spoken to quite a few other economists on our show, and we haven't really taken a dive into ecological economics at all. So let's start out by getting a description of what ecological economics is and what makes it different from other economic disciplines. Sure. Well, I think the first fundamental insight of ecological economics is that we conceive of the economy as a subsystem of the biosphere. In other words, it's not a question of the economy on the one hand and the environment on the other and some sort of trade-offs between the two, but it's a sort of a, a deep fundamental perspective that the economy sits inside the biosphere. Now, what does that mean in practice? Well, it means that the economy can only function by drawing continuously from the biosphere for its energy supplies and for its materials. It has to have a place to, to happen. A lot of economics somehow abstracts from space, from location. But ecological economics understands full well that the economy has to take place somewhere. Plus, all of the materials and energy that are brought into the environment are ultimately disposed of as waste. A lot of that happens very fast. But some materials in particular do stay in the economy for quite a long time, sometimes going through recycling processes. But I just to make the main point is... The economy is inside the biosphere. If you like, the economy is also inside society. So both society and the economy are subsystems of the biosphere. And that's really where ecological economics starts from. Once you adopt that perspective, what you quickly realize is that you really can't do ecological economics without drawing quite heavily on the natural sciences. Because after all, it's the natural sciences that uh, have the most to tell us about how the biosphere operates so what ecological economists try to do is to draw insights, information from the natural sciences and see to what extent that affects our understanding of how the economy functions, can function, and ought to function. The second, I think, distinguishing feature of ecological economics from other brands of economics is in the value system we bring to bear. I don't think we've worked this out completely I think it's fair to say that most ecological economists are less anthropocentric than other economists. In other words, we might talk about the rights of other species, the rights of ecosystems, in fact, so that we don't just look at these as resources to be used by humans, but as components of the biosphere, which some might say have intrinsic value or have some sorts of rights that we have to respect, not just because we want to make use of them. The third distinguishing feature of ecological economics is that we pay attention to the goals of an economy and we come to maybe a different conclusion from other economists, whereas they might emphasize endless economic growth. We talk more about well-being and what contributes to well-being and achieving improvements in well-being without at the same time placing excessive burdens on the biosphere both for the ethical reasons I gave before, but also for pragmatic reasons, that the, there are limits to what the biosphere can cope with. So those are the three main distinguishing features of ecological economics. It's uh, economy is a subsystem of the biosphere, the ethical framework, and thirdly, the different objectives that we focus on. So you're talking about all kinds of different sciences here. You're talking about ethical sciences and biological sciences and, and economic sciences. What is your background? What is your education? What led you to become an ecological economist? 
Well, I went to school in England, and I was very fortunate in a way. I was at a what was then called a grammar school. I was about the age of 15. In most grammar schools in England, a student with my record would have been asked to leave the school. But in my school, we had a group of subjects, economics, economic history, and political science, that was available to students who seemed to have difficulty with the other subjects. So I found myself at the age of 15 or so being introduced to economics, and I found a subject that I really warmed to. I just thought it was the greatest thing out, and I just immersed myself in it. Went on to specialize in economics as an undergraduate at the University of Birmingham, and then to do a PhD in economics at UBC in Canada. My education was in some sense quite narrow, because in the English system, you only studied three subjects in your last two years of high school. And I happened to choose economics, economic history, and music. That took me into economics as a specialism in, in university. And then from there, I became aware of not was all right with the economy. My interest began to focus on some of the things that were desperately wrong with the way the economy was functioning. And that led me to, I suppose, make some contributions to the foundations of ecological economics. Because when I was working on these subjects in the 1960s, the term ecological economics hadn't yet been coined. Uh, that came, I should think, it's fair to say, around 1980. But some of us made some various uh, contributions that I think have been incorporated within ecological economics. And what was it that sparked that understanding that things weren't all exactly the way that they seemed as economics had been taught? Well, there's this concept in very conventional economics, many of your listeners may well have run into, externalities. The idea of an externality was that the market system works very well if the full consequences of any action are born either by the person who imposes the action or the person that the action is imposed on. Well, let me put that in simple terms. If I run a factory and I produce something and I sell it to somebody else, then I incur some costs. If they think what I've produced is valuable enough, they'll pay a price that more than covers my cost so I can earn some profit. But in a process like that, the assumption is that there's nobody else really gets interfered with through those activities. Now, if my factory also puts out smoke into the atmosphere so that all sorts of people are suffering from the exposure to the smoke. We call that an externality. To be clear, it means external to the market transaction. So people who experience those bad effects of my factory have no means through the market, short of packing up and moving somewhere else, to deal with the problem. Well, when I was taught about externalities, the thing that struck me was that externalities weren't unusual. Externalities were the norm. They're all over all over the place, in the simplest things that I'm talking now from Toronto in my office, I'm looking across the road to a neighbor's house. Well, they chose the color of their house, but I'm the one who gets to look at it. I have no say in that. It's an example, not very serious one, but it's still an example of an externality. So I began to think that environmental externalities in particular were all pervasive and that to treat them as unusual and to assume them away, which is very common in a lot of economic literature of the highest caliber, you'll often find the writer saying, well, assuming away externalities. And I thought that was completely wrong. And I was doing my economic studies in the late 60s at a time when the environmental movement was really gaining ground. So I kind of put these things together, a concern about the environment. I was now studying in Vancouver, which was just so beautiful that anything that spoilt it well, had to be dealt with, sort of a teaching in economics that I was doing, or learning economics in a way that sort of said externalities weren't somehow very important. So I, I thought that was wrong, and I've ever since then 
been drawn towards the side of or the understanding of, of economies with an emphasis on what's not working well. So that goes well beyond environment. I would say now it's pretty clear that it, it goes into uh, distribution. More and more people understand that the distribution, that means high incomes versus low incomes, high wealth versus low wealth, uh, that the market economy throws up is just grossly unfair. And the Occupy movement and so on, I think, has drawn attention to that. The longevity of the economy. Now we talk about sustainable development and we ask questions about whether growth can continue. This isn't exactly an externality problem. There's a question of whether the economy can continue to operate if it continues to draw increasing quantities of resources from nature. So there are many, many reasons for being concerned about the way the economy functions. And I suppose just to finish the story, I'll mention uh, the financial system. I guess up until a few years ago, most of us didn't think about the financial system. We kind of assumed it, it was ticking over and was doing whatever had to be done so that the real economy could function, where we go to work and make things and buy and sell them. Turns out that's not the case at all. And I'm sure in your interview with Steve Keen that you mentioned in the outset, he explained that in great detail as to why the financial system was not working very well. So we've got a whole host of issues now to worry about as to why the economy is not functioning well. And that's quite a good agenda to work on to fix these things up. That's right. And it seems like we forget about these externalities all the time when we consider economic growth. But as you mentioned before, the, the economy lives inside of a biosphere and you can't do economics without involving the natural resources that are so very essential to life and to everything on this planet. So biological and economic sciences are linked and hence the term ecological economics. Why is it do you think that humans forget about this natural link between the economy and the biology of the planet and in so doing so forgetting about all the externalities that go along with it? Well, that's a, a complicated question to answer. I, I'll give you a, a few thoughts on it. First of all, with the economic growth that rich countries in particular have benefited from, we've created the illusion that we are no longer dependent upon nature. We don't use the term conquering nature very much anymore, but it used to be quite well used. And, and it was, I suppose, a Victorian theme that man, and that was the term they used, had conquered nature. The illusion, however, continues to be promoted because where do most people get food from? Well, they get it from supermarkets without any thought about what lies behind that. Now we've got increasing efforts to continue to manipulate nature through, for example, uh, genetic engineering. We have the increasingly aggressive technologies that are being used to access fossil fuels. So we, we've got a sense that if nature presents a barrier to us, we can overcome it. We're just human and we, we're smart enough to do it with technology. I think there's so many reasons for thinking that's not correct. Nonetheless, that's, if you like, in broad terms, the culture that we've created for ourselves. Also, I would say that one of the transformations that's taken place in our economy is we've gone from having a substantial proportion of the population living and working in agriculture to, you know, what is it, three or four percent of Canadians work in agriculture. If you add in those who work in forestry and those who work in fishing, it's still a very small proportion of the working population that, that are directly engaged with nature in their work. Everybody else, it's abstract. It's not something that's part of our direct experience. And now if we just add on top of that, the, the time that people spend living in front of a screen of different sizes, it's hour upon hour every day in front of a screen. It's, it's removed from a direct relationship with nature. Just as a reminder to anybody who's listening to this, just hold your breath for five minutes and then see how removed you are, you think, from natural systems. I mean, we are biological beings. We're not only biological beings, but we are biological beings. 
And if we don't have food and water and protect ourselves from the elements and so on, we'd suffer miserably and even die. So the neoliberal economists are holding their breath? <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm not one to talk in huge generalities about other economists. I guess I, at one point I should have made earlier about why we don't pay that much attention to natural systems is that there was a time that you could make the case that our economy was really quite small in relation to the biosphere. If you look at, say, for example, the quantity of materials, different kinds that are moved through natural processes and compare that with the quantities being moved by human economies around the world, we were doing very little. That's changed. We now are responsible for moving, in physical terms, a substantial amount of many, many materials, often on a, on a scale that's, that's as large as the other natural systems or even greater than that. So we've become a geologic force, if you like. Well, I don't think that's entered into the sort of the psyche of people, and it hasn't entered into the psyche of many economists who don't pay attention to these things. So that old assumption that the economy was small in relation to the biosphere is now completely out of whack with the facts. And by and large, mainstream economists, which is taught in the textbooks and most economics departments, hasn't caught up with that, doesn't pay attention to it in the way that ecological economists do. You wrote the book Managing Without Growth, and one of the things that you were doing in that book was talking about some of the history of economic growth and why it is feasible to think that we could manage without growth. But where is it that we started becoming so obsessed with the idea of economic growth and why have politicians continually turned to it as the key policy solution of the last few decades to solve nearly all of our social problems in the developed world and in developing world? Well, it's a very interesting story that can be told at great length. I would just give a thumbnail sketch. The interest in economic growth goes back right to the origins of economics itself. Adam Smith is sometimes described as the father of economics. One of his main books was called The Wealth of Nations, and he was certainly concerned about growth. He was also concerned that it wouldn't continue indefinitely. So the interest in economic growth has a long history in economics. We're going back now well over 200 years. But the idea that economic growth should be a centerpiece of government policy, that's a much newer idea. And that can really be dated back to the Great Depression in the 30s, when very, very large numbers of people were out of work and desperate times for many. And the economists of the day, by and large, said, well, this is a terrible thing, but there's not much government can do about it. And along comes John Maynard Keynes, perhaps the most influential economist of the 20th century, saying, well, the main reason why there's all this unemployment is because not enough money is being spent. The private sector is not spending the money. Therefore, he argued in times of depression, and any time, really, when the economy is well below its the potential output it can produce, he said the government has a role to play in spending money to stimulate expenditure. So he produced a theoretical framework for that. Along comes the housing boom at the end of the 30s, and then World War II in particular, where governments did spend money. They didn't worry too much about the views of, of economists. So there was a water win, and uh, it was very important, therefore, to see that the capacity of the economy to produce be maximized. And so this was, a, a, if you like, an empirical proof of Keynes's argument. After the Second World War, in fact, this happened just towards the end of the war, economists uh, in different countries, different Western countries in particular, and some governments started saying, you know, we now think we understand the cause of unemployment, it's lack of total spending, and we can do something about it. So we will now adopt full employment as an explicit policy for government. 
And that's what they did in many places in Canada, the US, UK, Australia, other countries like that, in the 40s, in the mid 40s. By around 1950, other economists, some who'd been taught by Keynes, by the way, said, you know what, when money is spent in a particular year on, let's say, new equipment, uh, new buildings, and that stimulates employment, it also adds to the capacity of the economy to produce in subsequent years, because you've now got more buildings and more equipment. If they are going to be employed, and along with a growing labor force, the government's going to have to ensure that more and more money is spent every year for the purpose of maintaining full employment. This is economic growth. And so the connection between full employment and economic growth became well understood. And economic growth as a policy was adopted as an objective, but initially in order to secure full employment. But now we enter the period, I'm talking now around in the late 1950s, early 1960s, of the Cold War. And economic growth went from being simply a means to secure full employment to a means to put together the resources that seemed to be necessary to fight the Cold War. And so economic growth now took center stage, and it's never really lost that. Why hasn't it lost it? Well, economic growth does seem attractive, doesn't it? Because whatever the problem is that you've got, if it's a lack of employment, lack of housing, lack of roads, lack of schools, lack of healthcare, well, if we've got more economic output, and that's what we're talking about with economic growth, we'll be better able to solve those problems. Plus, and this is really important because I've already mentioned the question of distribution and inequities and things like that. If the economy is growing, well, maybe the problem of inequity, unequal distribution of incomes and wealth isn't so serious because everybody can get richer. So we don't have to worry about redistribution. So I can fully understand the attraction of economic growth to not just to politicians, but to businesses. I mean, businesses can continue to show increased profits. Shareholders can be increasingly satisfied as the value of their equities go up. Pensioners can benefit from increased growth. I mean, it's very attractive. Trouble is, it comes with some very significant downsides and looks like it's not something that can go on forever. In fact, we may very well be entering the era where economic growth is no longer really a viable option. So it's easy to see, I suppose, why it's attractive. It's harder to see what the downsides are, and it's even more difficult to see how we're going to manage without growth, if that's what we have to think about. Economic growth as a model is a very, very young idea. And it's been with us for what, like maybe 200 years, 300 years or something like that? Should every man have the fundamental right to have that nine to five job? And is it possible to decouple job creation from economic growth? I suppose there's something attractive about thinking that there's a slot in society for you that everybody else has created for you and you'll have security and good share of the things that we're told is the good life by those who make a business out of describing the good life. I'm talking now about advertisers in particular, but it's not very exciting. It's nowhere near as exciting to my mind as graduating from university with an understanding of the real situation that we're facing and the challenge of, okay, how are we going to solve these problems? How are we going to get through this? The challenge to educators like myself is to try to adequately equip our students with concepts, ideas, insights, tools, that's very important, so that as a group, they can go out and fix this mess. That, I think, is exciting. Now, the answer to to that will not likely be regular nine-to-five jobs with an annual increment in salary of 2 or 3% a year over the rest of your working life. That's a very likely future. It's certainly not what's happening now. But that doesn't mean that the alternative is necessarily worse. 
not at all. So if you're asking whether people can expect to be gainfully employed in the future, I say absolutely. There's so much that has to be done. But that gainful employment may very well look very different from the norm that was established, if you like, in the last half century, the 20th century. Also, in looking at our ideas of employment, we hear the new president of France saying, you know, we've had enough of austerity. What we really need is growth and we need to find new ways to restore growth. But as you were just saying, maybe we've reached a point where growth is no longer possible. The limits to growth study now we're coming up on the 40 year anniversary of it. And perhaps we're finally reaching some of those limits to growth. And so what does that do to our, our ideas of job creation and central planning of economies if we really have reached those limits to growth? Well, let me make a distinction that I think is really important in this discussion. It's very clear to me that we have to reduce the burden we're placing on the environment through our economy. There's a long list of abuses. I won't give it out now, but I'll just mention some, starting with climate change and biodiversity loss and acidification of the oceans and shortage of fresh water, soil depletion and so on. So there's lots out there that tell us that we're overusing the capacity of the biosphere to support us. That is what we have to reduce. So if we're talking about ending growth, in fact, ending growth of the impact that we're placing on the biosphere is not enough. We've got to reduce the burden. Now, when we talk in conventional terms about economic growth, it's really the value of things bought and sold in the shops, plus whatever new equipment businesses buy and whatever new buildings government and businesses put up. Broadly speaking, that's what we mean by economic growth. Whether that can continue to rise for a while while we also reduce the burden we place on the environment remains an open question. My view on it is, at least for a period of time, because we have been so inefficient in the genuine sense of that term, in, our, in the way we relate to nature, we can do both. We can cut back on our materials, on our emissions of various contaminants, on the energy we use, without necessarily seeing a gross domestic product decline. What I don't believe, however, is that that separation can go on forever. You can reduce the use of energy to produce some unit of output, but you can't keep reducing it until you're using no energy to produce output. In other words, there's some sort of lower limit that we'll approach. We may approach it pretty soon, but at least for a transition time, as, as we try to build a new economy, we don't have to think, well, we've got to stop growth as traditionally defined right now in order to reduce the burden on the environment. So it's a, a more nuanced discussion. What I wanted to do in my book, Managing Without Growth, was to see if over the long term, an economy that wasn't growing in the traditional sense of rising GDP could still provide a whole range of valuable outcomes, such as significantly reduced greenhouse gas emissions, elimination of poverty, full employment, and a balanced budget. So all of those things turn out to be feasible, even if the economy is not growing. The primary purpose of trying to show that was because I've lived so long now, worked on these issues for so long, that I'm fed up, frankly, hearing good ideas defeated because people will say, but what's that going to do for growth? We've got to have growth. We've got to have growth. Well, I wanted to show that actually you don't have to have growth to live well. So my point, Justin, is to say that it's not simple like saying, well, we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. There's something to that statement, but the issues are way too complex to be dealt with in that way. I'm not saying that's what you said, but it's kind of, I think, in a way, 
you were moving in that direction by referring to the 1972 Limits to Growth study. But having said that, I'll just make a comment about that study. I was very much influenced by the study when it came out. I was struck by the vehement criticism that economists leveled at it, which I thought was quite unfair. Some of the criticism was valid, but nobody ever does any work that's immune from criticism. But they struck a nerve by criticizing growth. However, when you look back, as a, a particular Australian a researcher has done by the name of Graham Turner, and all this is on the internet, but people can, can check it out, he said, look, we've had 30 years when he was writing of data since The Limits to Growth was published. In The Limits to Growth book, they produced a variety of scenarios. One was what they called the standard run, which was if the trends that had been going on up until about 1970 continued, what would happen? Then they had a number of different scenarios, like technological optimist scenario, where technologies would be brought on very rapidly with the idea that growth could somehow continue indefinitely. That was the case. And they had some other scenarios. and They had a, st a stabilization scenario. Well, what Turner did was to say, okay, well, let's look and see what's actually happened in the 30 years since the Limits to Growth was published. And what he shows pretty clearly is that the standard run is the one that is closest to what has actually happened. Now, this, I have to say, is rather disturbing because although the authors of The Limits to Growth made it very clear they weren't trying to make predictions, what they were investigating was what they called the mode of behavior of the global or the world system. To be told that the standard run is the one that we seem to be tracking along the closest is worrying because the standard run collapses. We haven't reached the collapse yet. And in fact, if you look at limits to growth, they started seeing collapse happening a third or midway through the 21st century. But the mode of behavior of the system that they identified was one of continued expansion, followed by overshoot and then collapse. So this is rather discouraging from an academic point of view much to the credit of the original Limits to Growth study, that they seem to have captured some fundamental trends that were going on then that most people were blind to, and sadly seem to be continuing today. Even with all the technological development that we've had since that original study was published, we still appear to be on that standard track? That's right. Um, so the new, new Apple iPad is not having any effect on changing the economy, huh? It's not having an effect on significantly reducing greenhouse gases, for example, they continue to rise. I mean, it, it takes energy to manufacture an iPad, to distribute it, to operate it. On its own, of course, it's incredibly amazing and efficient, but they're selling <laughs> hundreds of millions of them. So it adds up. And that was what's so intriguing about Turner's work. I mean, it's highly aggregated. I, you know, what I mean by that, it's, it's very broad brush. But the population scenario that they have in the Limits to Growth study is not that distant from what we've experienced in the last 30 years. The use of energy is fairly close to what they said we would be doing. And so even though we've had these technological changes, the broad outline of where they said we were heading and where we've in fact gone uh, look very similar. Going off of your assertion about collapse, we've been talking about some large abstract economic ideas, and that's probably what you deal with on a regular basis in your work. And these are ideas that ordinary people really might have a hard time getting interested in wrapping their mind around, just finding a place in their life that these ideas fit in. I think of some of the people that live in this state who just have a really hard time thinking about you know, other things other than American Idol and, you know, who's going to be on the next reality TV show. How do we get people interested in changing their lifestyles when here in the United States and Canada, 
business as usual appears to be moving forward without any hitches or any only a few dips. Uh, must we wait for inevitable depression or decline to spike action? Well, you're asking me more about political science than you are ecological economics. And so I need to say that so that nobody listening to this thinks I'm claiming expertise that I don't really have. But I think the following, that we're already seeing some growing appreciation that all is not well. I think that's a fair description of the Occupy movement. I think it's a fair description of the several month long strike of students in Quebec. I think it's, it's also a fair statement of many of the protests that you're seeing in Europe. You can, you can look around, you can say, well, people are not entirely complacent. There are groups who are quite alert to the fact that all is not well. On, on top of that, you can add the whole range of, of environmental groups and faith groups and groups that are out there offering a critique of what's going on and, and trying to, to build something better. But also, I'm quite impressed by some of the work that a fellow by the name of Gar Alperovitz has come up with. I don't know if, if he's known to you, but Gar talks about the new economy. And the new economy is a very richly conceived idea. It's not just uh, a quick fix to some technologies. It involves new patterns of work, new patterns of ownership, as much as it does new kinds of things to produce and consume. And what Gar has done, and he's done this particularly for the US, where in a way it's the most surprising, is to start documenting all of the activity that's going on, which seems sort of outside what we consider the mainstream economy. The co-op movement, for example, and that's been around a long time. He notes that 130 million Americans belong to a co-op of one form or another. I found that startling. He talks about the organic food movement, urban agriculture. He talks about the initiatives that some of the labor unions in the U.S. are making to learn from some of the unusual ways of organizing production. The Mondragon movement, that's the word I was looking for, in Spain. The fact that the U.S. unions should be looking to them for guidance, that's, that's really quite interesting. Anyway, I don't want to go, I don't want to sort of try to repeat what Gar says, but what he's done in his work is identify very wide range of activities that are already happening. Local currencies is another one. I was just down in the Berkshires in the last few days at some interesting meetings. They have a local currency in Great Barrington, and it's quite remarkable to see it functioning in real life, to be able to go into a restaurant and pay with a currency that a local community has produced for itself to stimulate its local economy. So there's lots happening. Whether it will sort of bubble up into enough to bring about the sort of scope of change that, that I happen to think is required, we have to wait and see. But what it does do, it provides us with real live examples of people doing things differently, which as and when a crisis may occur, we've got some existing models, some existing examples to learn from and to implement. We're not sort of going to have to start from scratch. And I find that very encouraging. And it's the sort of thing that I, you know, going back to an earlier part of our discussion, that our students need to know more about. And not to think that if they can't get a nine to five job in a big company or a government department, there's nothing for them. There's loads for them. It may require much more initiative on their part working with other people than they might have anticipated. But of course, that's one of the things the new technology is helping to facilitate through social media. So I'm not unduly pessimistic. I think we can rise to the occasion, but we'll only do that if we realize the seriousness of the predicament that we're in.
It is about historical change. How you begin fighting small and you expand when the time is right and you make an impact because the other things are failing. That's what's happened in many, many cases. Revolutions are as common as grass in world history and they begin in rooms like this. When I say I take you all seriously, first I'm talking to the person in your personal seat. So when I say I take you seriously, you, more seriously maybe than you take yourself, I mean to say that the beginnings of the next great historic change come from us taking ourselves that seriously. So I urge, and I think many people here do, but I urge that you sit back and say, yeah, I'm really, am I up to that or am I just doing politics or am I really up to that? Now the that is transforming the most powerful corporate capitalist system in the history of the world. That's what it's about. A gesture, not simply a new party, not simply a green movement. It is that. And that is the challenge. Now, I'm a very cold-eyed realist. And I say to you again that we have the possibility, if we look at the stage we are at and what is happening to the era and who we are existentially, I am talking to the person in your chair. And if we know who we are and take ourselves that seriously, we have that possibility. I don't think that's always true. But I do think that the emerging era of history into which we are living our lives, the system is running out of options. And we're beginning to see more and more people aware of the difficulties that cannot be managed the old way. Lots of problems grow because the political system can't manage it the way it's structured, and the opposition can't get themselves together to make things happen, and the Republicans stop it, and the Tea Party stop it, and you know all the contradictions. The bottom line is it can't solve problems. That's obvious. Most people know Washington is broken. They haven't quite realized that the systemic problems are coming to the surface, that it is a systemic crisis. You may get ripples of increased gain and jobs and so forth, but you can't deal with climate change, you can't deal with unemployment, you can't deal with poverty, and we keep getting more and more decay. That's light bulb time. That's when people begin to asking very serious questions. Now, remember, when I say that, I come at it as a historian. You've got to throw a couple decades of your life on the table, not a couple weeks and not a couple elections. But there is growing sentiment on all sides that either we transform this system or profound difficulties, violence, probably repression, possibly something like fascism, if when the violence begins, there's great danger. But lots of folks sense something's wrong. The first time in my adult life that you find millions of people responding, and it's a new kind of awareness that something's going on with those big banks and something's going on with those corporations don't quite know how to get a handle on it. But it is not like if we just elect a Democrat, it's all going to be fine and the progressive era will start again. There is a sense that's very deep. And in my view, given the inability to solve the problems, that's going to be worse. And the pain is going to increase. And the number of people saying, it's got to be a better way. Something different's got to happen. Somehow we've got to start in a different place. Somehow either we build something new or this thing's a sham. 
That's a big deal in history. That's a big deal when people begin asking those kind of questions. Now, that takes a long, painful process. But notice, this system probably doesn't reform in the old liberal way, for all the reasons we know about, including that the labor movement has collapsed from 35% to down to 7% in the private sector. But probably it doesn't have a classic revolution because government is 30% of the big floor under the economy. You get decay and stagnation and pain and difficulty. That is a very unusual moment in history because it goes on and gives time to be, for people to be aware, to build, and to build democratically from the bottom up. If it collapsed tomorrow, the right wing would take over. And if it collapsed to the left, we wouldn't be prepared. And above all, we wouldn't know from the bottom of our own experience how to build and run, change to transform the system. This is an era where things are beginning to open up over time. Time for us, including the person standing here and in your seat. Let me put it another way. Systems in history are defined above all by who controls the wealth. Is there any sign, if you don't like state socialism, you don't like corporate capitalism, that we can build a democratic system from the bottom up that also changes the ownership of capital and is also inherently green? How do we do that? One of the things that's happening, and this is exciting stuff going on, that the press simply does not cover. They don't have any interest. If they had any interest, they'd be able to look at the other way because they would, but they don't have any money to do it. The press is being stripped of all capacity to report. But on the ground, there are now, what, 10 million people involved in worker-owned companies? Did you know that? 10 million. 10 million. There are, in America, 130 million are involved in co-ops and co-op credit unions, 40% of the society. Four or 5,000 neighborhood-owned corporations, thousands of social enterprises, odd bits and pieces here and there like Sarah Palin's Alaska. They use the oil revenues as a matter of legal right. Everybody gets a piece. Where did that come from? It's a maverick country, but there it is. They don't do that in Texas. We're going to do that a lot elsewhere when we get to where we're going to get if you look carefully on the ground, there are these social enterprises popping up, credit unions, et cetera, et cetera, and there are many, many, many more experiments. Something like 20 states are now have legislation before them, like the Bank of North Dakota, a state-owned bank. And many other states, another 20 approximately, are considering single-payer. And here's the issue. As the pain deepens, that's why the era is critical. As the pain deepens and we have time to build, and we work to build, more and more people begin to see you've got to come up with a new answer. My judgment is, and I think I'm not blowing smoke, those kinds of experiments are the only way to build the popular base with the politics and the projects, with the politics and the project, my suggestion to you is that we together are in fact capable, if we rise to that level of existential self-awareness, real hard, real hard. People want to do projects, they want to do politics, they don't want to get as serious as it takes 
to really transform the system. So that, I think, is our challenge. And I see a lot of people in this room really up and ready to do it. Thank you for having me. That was Gar Alperovitz speaking at the 2012 Green Party Conference in the United States, and you were listening to the Extra Environmentalist episode number 53. And today we're talking with Peter Victor about ecological economics. And what you've been able to do in a lot of your work and your writing is start to address some of the severity of of these issues through looking at the ways to actually change the way that economics works and by using some of the ideas of ecological economics. And I'm wondering what it's been like to either correspond with economists that, you know, you've criticized their ideas or as you've published papers, have received comments from other economists who are maybe more mainstream. And how do they typically respond? Do they just ignore some of your critiques about being disconnected from ecological processes? Or what are some of the most fallacious arguments you've heard from neoclassical economists that you've tried to debunk? Well, I would say, by and large, we haven't engaged very much. So that's unfortunate. It may be changing a little bit, but by and large, that's, that's the case. And that although I've had numerous opportunities to speak to many different groups, I'm aware that most people choose to go to listen to speakers that they largely agree with. I'm not sure that I'm any different in that. And so whilst there's plenty of scope for healthy debate, not really taken place. Now, I can point to some exceptions in my own experience. One of Canada's most esteemed economists, uh, Richard Lipsy, and I have debated growth on a number of occasions, both on radio, in live sessions open to the public, and in writing. And it's a good debate. You know, I, I suppose what ends up dividing us more than anything else is what we think technology can or can't accomplish. And I suspect that's a key point that would separate me from many other economists. But I, I want to say this, and that is that, as I said earlier on, I've had a pretty good training in economics. We don't actually study technology. We make assumptions about it. But economists generally don't study technology. And so I'm always uh, rather at a loss know what to say to economists who will make bold assumptions about technology's capacity to overcome any constraint, knowing that that's not something they've generally looked at in any detail. The second thing, going back to you specifically your question, is that insofar as mainstream economists might engage with the kind of position I'm taking, is they will say, well, look, the problem is that the prices are wrong. The prices are not adequately telling us what's scarce, all right? If air is scarce, we ought to price it. Hence, economists propose uh, emissions trading as a way of dealing with greenhouse gases or use taxes to try and fix prices. I've heard that for 50 years, I think it's fair to say now, that we, well, the way to solve the problem of externalities is to put a price on them. The first economist to write about this in any detail was an English economist called Pigou, P-I-G-O-U, and there's a tax named after him, the Pigovian tax, put a tax on all the externalities. The problem is that whilst that approach can be useful, and I, I need to say that, as a general solution to these problems, it's not the right answer because we just don't know how to set the prices right. We don't know what the damages are. The techniques that are used for estimating these damages are derived from what we call microeconomics, where you hold everything else constant except the one issue you're looking at. But when you're looking at a system-wide problem, 
And that's how I see it. You can't hold everything constant. Everything's changing. Everything's interacting. So the idea of getting the prices right, whilst it might sound appealing, turns out not to be a practical approach. Whilst it has some specific applications, it's nothing like a general solution to the problem. So after economists got a little bit tired of saying, get the prices right, they said, well, look, that's not the real problem. The problem is get the property rights right. We're overusing the air because we don't have rights to its ownership. And again, it's part of the argument for emissions trading. So in other words, what they're saying is the solution to our problem is that the market system is not pervasive enough. We've somehow got to include everything in it, everything that's scarce. And then the problems will go away. There's a very strong alternative view to that, which says that the problem is not that the market isn't pervasive enough, but that it's too pervasive. It's taken over aspects of our lives where it shouldn't. So much so that we now, as is widely known, judge one another by how much money we earn or the, the goods that we consume, uh, the idea of conspicuous consumption, going back to Veblen in the late 19th century. I mean, these ideas are very old. We've just, <laughs> we've just taken them and run with them. But now you've got this concern, it came up very much in the Rio Plus 20 conference, of what they call the financialization of nature. You have a lot of people in the northern countries, the advanced countries in particular, saying, well, the services we get from ecosystems are really valuable. Valuable, we've got to put a price on them. And then you get, well, we found in Rio Plus 20, people from developing countries saying, we're very nervous about that because you start putting a dollar value on our ecosystem goods and services. The next thing we know is you'll be buying them up, taking them over, using them for your benefit, not for ours and so on. But it's just an interesting episode now to see this debate about whether extension of the market is the solution or control of the market and allowing other social structures to play a more prominent role is the solution. Again, it's a great topic for further inquiry and discussion. Yeah, we could probably explore those ideas for a very long time. I wanted to go back to a comment you made earlier. Many people on this show are pretty anti-technology, and Justin is included in that people, or those people. <laughs> and uh, they tell us how toys are not going to solve the problem, these technological toys that we see emerging. And what we hear from advertisers and political figures is that we just need more innovation, and we're just one step away from making the Western world the center of the economic growth world once again. What do you think is the role of technology in a steady state economy? First thing I want to say is that this word technology is so often used as if technology is 10 years old or 15 years old, and that somehow before that we didn't have technology. It's absurd. Writing is a technology. Uh, the blackboard and chalk, they're technologies. Knife and fork is a technology. The container into which we put liquids, there's this technology. So human society and technology have been intimately related uh, ever since we had human society. That's why they called it the Stone Age, because they used stones as, to make their implements. So what we're really asking then is, is there something distinctive about the technologies that have arisen? I said 10, 15 years, you might want to say 25, 30 years, but the sort of the incredibly powerful portable technologies that can process digitalized information so rapidly. This seems to be what's new and what is so fascinating. What can it do for us? Well, like every technology you can think of, it can help and it can hurt. And generally, it does both. So I don't have to tell anybody listening to this program about the attractions of these technologies. We are being told that all the time by the advertisers, and sometimes it's obvious anyway. But there are some downsides. Number one, if you go back through the supply chain, the material requirements of a very low material piece of equipment can be very high. 
to get to some of the rare metals, for example, that are used in electronics, you have to move physically huge amounts of overburden in some cases. And so what we hold in our hands seems very light in terms of materials. But to get that into your hand involved the movement of a tremendous amount of material. Secondly, the social impact of these technologies is really difficult to understand. We've all had experiences where we're in a group and the people in that group are all communicating to unseen people over the internet, over their cell phones, and not at all communicating with the people who are around them. I find this bizarre. And I sometimes find I'm the one who's left out. So maybe that's why I find it awkward because I don't generally do that. But I, I think that impacts on our social lives that we haven't really begun to understand. The third thing I want to say is that these miniaturized technologies have done something which often goes unappreciated. They've made it possible for us to build bigger pieces of equipment than were ever possible before. If you look at the largest earth-moving equipment around, or you look at the large trucks that are used, for example, in Canada's tar sands, or if you look at the buildings that go up, the enormous buildings that are being built, if you look at the cruise ships that, are, that get bigger every year, all of these technologies require miniaturization. They require computers in their design. They require computers in their operation as well. And so the miniaturization that is so attractive in some ways is also creating increasing problems for us. Now, in terms of a, an economy that's not growing, I think of such an economy as highly innovative, more innovative than one that is growing. For the simple reason that we need innovation, not only in our technologies, which we will continue to do to reduce our impacts on the biosphere, but in our social systems, in the structure of our economy, we'll need innovations in our financial system, which clearly isn't working even within normal scheme of things. We need innovations to deal with employment in an economy that's not growing. That may mean more flexible work hours. It may mean work sharing. We need innovations in transportation that are going to move us around, but in a way that reduces our energy requirement and materials requirement. So I see a, an economy that's not growing, if you like, a steady state economy as one that's highly innovative and really ought to be something that seemed to be incredibly attractive to the younger people. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point that we don't hear about a lot because a lot of people just think that if we're not growing, then you know we're just Luddites and we're going back to the Stone Age. That's how it's often painted for us. And we wanted to talk a little bit about what different aspects of our society would look like if the people who were running it maybe had some ecological economics background. Well, we can try. Our first question in that vein what would a nation look like if some of the chief economic administrators had a background in ecological economics or were trying to act from it? How do you think their economic policies would differ? Well, I think the first thing that would change is the measure of success, that if they were informed by ecological economics, the measures of success would be much more directly related to what we know matters in terms of people's well-being. So we wouldn't look at GDP as any kind of measure of success. We might still continue to measure it, but it would be in deep background. What we would be looking at are things like life expectancy, how well housed the population is, level of poverty, the distribution of ownership and wealth, and of course, all of the links between the economy and the environment, uh, the material and energy flows that we've been talking about. So policymakers would be directing their efforts to trying to see how our society and economy can perform better in relation to this 
richer and rather different set of measures. We would be looking at more localization and less globalization, as everybody listening to this show probably realizes over the last number of years, many governments have been working flat out to increase globalization, which means making each national economy more and more dependent upon economies in other parts of the world. And this makes us less resilient. It means when something goes wrong on the other side of the world, something goes wrong in your backyard too because of that dependency. And so I think that the governments would be much more focused on trying to make economies resilient. By that, I mean able to withstand shocks. And one of the things that's pretty clear about that is is having some greater degree of local reliance, local supply, not isolation by any means, uh, more diversification at the same time. I think we would make a much more determined effort to promote, call it self-propelled means of transport, walking, skateboarding, cycling. Instead of seeing these as somehow things that we've got to integrate with cars, I put the emphasis the other way around, saying these are the primary forms of transportation, and then we need to supplement them because they only get you so far. So we should then be looking at mass transit as the next best thing. And then the sort of the last resort would be what we now count on rather as the first one, which is the self-run automobile. Education would be different. We've had some interesting discussions in this past hour about what people coming out of the education system now can expect. I think the real source of stress and strain for them is a feeling that the world they expect to live in is not one they feel well-educated about and well-able to succeed in. And so we've got to bridge the gap between the kind of world we're really living in and, and expect to live in and the education that we provide our students so instead of just thinking of educating students to find an employer who will give them work, I think students need to be much better equipped to develop their own businesses, their own activities in many different ways, in many different structures. Oh, I suppose I'll just mention the local currency. I'm um, in two minds about local currencies, but what I found is when I mention local currencies to people who ask me somewhat the same questions that you're talking about, or you've been putting to me, they get really excited. And there have been a number of experiments. Many of them have failed. But the Berkshire, as it's called, is doing quite well. There are now, I think, 13 banks in Great Barrington that participate in the system. That means that you or I can go into one of these banks with our so-called federal dollars, US dollars, and exchange them for these Berkshires. And then we can take the Berkshires and we can spend them in the local community. And those will then get respent in the local community because only people in that region will accept them. They're not bound to accept them. They don't have to accept them, but they know what the system is about and they do accept them. And so you get the stimulation of the local economy from this. And you also get, and this is what is, I think, so intriguing, is you get a sort of a sense of a community looking out for its members. And I think we've lost that to a large extent. And the market system doesn't encourage that. The market system thrives on anonymity, that when you go and buy something from somebody, you're not expected to know anything about them, to even have a conversation with them. When someone's making something in a factory, they make it from raw materials they had no hand in, and they've got no real interest, perhaps, in the product they're making. They're not going to be the users of it. All of that seems to change when you have a local currency. So I'm quite interested in that, and I think governments more informed by ecological economics, we might see more interest in that. And interestingly enough, as you probably know, part of the reason for the euro crisis is that the countries in Europe that have adopted the common currency find that they can't devalue their currency 
as a response to a recession. So if Greece had its own currency, for example, what would have happened uh, under the current economic circumstances is that the value of its currency would have gone down in relation to the other European currencies and other world currencies, which would have made their exports more attractive, imports more expensive, and there would have been a process of adjustment. That is lost when you have a uniform currency. It's brought back with local currencies. So there are in, you know, it's an interesting possibility that I think is definitely worth looking into further. So it seems to me that, at least nowadays, that economies are either full steam ahead, going really well, expanding as much as they possibly can, or they're in decline, they're going down, they're going backwards. Is it possible to have an economy that is a steady state where they're not really going really fast ahead and they're not going into decline? Is, there, is that possible? Yeah, no, it's definitely possible to have an economy that, broadly speaking, does not expand the production and consumption of goods and services on an annual basis. And once you've reached the level of consumption that economists like Canada, the US, the West European economies have reached, it's not consumption that's the issue. The issue is distribution because some people get a huge share of what's produced and others get a tiny share. It's a problem that the main way you have of getting a share at all is either having wealth so that people pay you a return on your wealth or having a job so that you get a wage. Those are the two main sources of income which then allow you to go shopping. The problem we've got is that as our capital and our labor become more efficient, the only way they can stay fully employed is if the economy grows. So one of the things we have to do is find other ways of distributing the output of a non-growing economy so that we break that tie between employment, productivity, and growth. I'm sure that can be done, but it needs to be done through understanding what the problems and the solutions are and through genuine democratic discussion and decision-making. I don't see it as a top-down approach at all. But having said that, when you talk about a steady-state economy, what we haven't discussed is what would you, in fact, be holding steady? To my mind, once we've got our use of materials and energy down to levels that can be sustained, let's say indefinitely, not till eternity, but for long, long periods of time, down to that level without placing an undue burden on the biosphere, that's what we want to hold steady. What we are then able to do with that is going to depend upon our ingenuity. That certainly does not have to be held steady. That can continue to increase, and we can make better and better, more productive use of this steady supply of materials and energy. So I think a steady-state economy, properly defined, will be very dynamic and quite thrilling to live in, quite challenging, but quite thrilling, as long as it's done in a way that doesn't have us at each other's throats, but has us cooperating. And I see no reason why we can't do that. In your book, Managing Without Growth, you outlined some models that you created to look at how to run an industrialized nation without growth. And you were doing it in the Canadian context. But do you think that it could also be adapted to other nations? Canada is kind of a special case in some ways because we have so much excess biocapacity compared to most other countries that really are quite depleted in biocapacity and have to extract it from other places. So would it be perhaps easier to do a steady state economy in Canada versus other countries? Or would it even be harder to do it here because we're so ready to give those resources up to the rest of the world? First of all, other people have now tried to use the computer model I developed and apply it to other countries to see if they get anything like the same results. Some do, some don't. Secondly, as it turns out, 
the way I modeled the Canadian economy didn't make a lot of use of the fact that we were a heavily resource-based economy. But I take your point that it is one of the things that does distinguish Canada from other rich economies and may well be to our advantage. But I do want to say this, that the work that I did was really designed to get the ball rolling, was certainly not designed to be the last word on that particular question. And since the book was published, I've continued to work more on this question of what's the nature of the transformation that an economy like Canada will have to go through so that it can deliver all of the good things that we want out of an economy, things I mentioned before, whilst it's reducing the burden it places on the biosphere. But this time, I've thrown into the mix the financial system, which I didn't pay much attention when I did the work before. I also teamed up with Tim Jackson from the UK, so this is very much a joint effort that we're doing. And the way we're designing our new model is so that it can be more readily adapted to other countries and will allow us to address the kind of question that you've asked. My final point, though, is that I don't think any one advanced economy is going to say, yeah, we'll go steady state while everybody else continues to desperately strive for continued growth. What I see, and it's partly because of the great experience I've had the last few years talking to people around the world about these issues, is if it's going to be anything, it's going to be a general upsurge of interest of moving in this direction across a very wide range of economies. And that will make it easier for everyone. The toughest road would be for one country to try to really moderate its impact on the environment to the extent that its economy was not growing anymore while the others didn't, because capital particularly is mobile and wouldn't just slowly adjust to these circumstances. I expect it would find its way very rapidly to other parts of the world. And a lot of skilled labor in particular would do the same. So we're really talking about a movement that has to be international. And at the same time, it's fair to say that there's some small signs that that's exactly what we're beginning to see happen. Is there a way to make this international movement coalesce around the current government system that we have? Or does it mean that we need to turn over the government that we have currently? You know, there's no simple answer to that question. If the kind of ideas we've been discussing became more widespread, I do think our current government system is flexible enough that it could pick those ideas up and run with them. I may be wrong. Others might say that that's very naive, that our current system simply serves the centers of power that exist within the broader society and and will just do nothing but fight back. Well, wait and see, is all I can say. Uh, I think that in jurisdictions where there's some semblance of proportional representation, it makes it easier for these kinds of ideas to get expressed in legislatures because of the way the voting systems function. So that's something. That's, of course, why you've seen the Green Movement represented in the European Parliament before it got represented in any national parliament because they had proportional representation in Europe. I think that's true what I've just said. It's certainly true, say, in relation to the European Parliament and the UK Parliament. So what we're looking for, I think, is two things. We're looking for propagation of these ideas as part of a broadly based social movement and a responsive political system that can help articulate them. We definitely do need leaders. We need people who can stand up and talk back to us and say, look, this is the way I think we're going. But 
they will only be saying that when they're picking up those ideas from the public. So it's a multifaceted program of change. Whether it ultimately ends up in a complete transformation in our economy and political system, only time will tell. But I don't think, I'm certainly not one of those who says until we've got rid of capitalism or until we've completely changed our democratic system, we're not going to be able to accomplish anything. I've always thought that those positions were a a formula for for frankly doing nothing. And that's certainly not what I'm suggesting. So in coming just to our last few questions, we were wondering, is this something that individual businesses or individual cities could do and start working towards reducing this overall material and energy throughput through the economy or working towards some kind of steady state model? Are there any strategies for cities or businesses? Yes, well, I'm certainly glad you asked that question, because I think what it says is, I talked before about, if you like, what has to happen at the national level, even international level, and then I was talking at sort of the grassroots level. But of course, we do have an institutional structure in between that. And you mentioned two of the main components, business and cities. And you can find examples of where the ideas we've been discussing are being picked up, maybe not completely, but at least significantly. And under the previous uh, mayor in Toronto, a tremendous amount of effort was put into reducing waste, reducing energy, enhancing the social lives of underprivileged people. So I've had the good experience of living in a city which tried very hard to do that. So it is possible. There's also quite a number of businesses which have tried to operate on a different model. I mean, Mountain Equipment Co-op is perhaps a a leading Canadian example. It is a co-op and it's had a very strong environmental mandate and human rights mandate for many years now. But it's certainly not the only one. Uh, There's an organization called Bali, which brings together uh, smaller companies, all committed to, broadly speaking, the kind of program I've been laying out. So there's lots happening out there. And these are just a few things that that come to mind. Uh, If we're talking again about cities, there's an organization called the C40, which are 40 major cities around the world, not just in developed countries, which uh, came together to share ideas about best practice for reducing greenhouse gases. They're not waiting for their national governments to take a lead. Some are taking a lead, others aren't. They're saying, let's get on with it. And there's a lot that can be done at the city level. After all, we've now passed that point in history where more than 50% of the world's population live in urban areas. And so cities really have a key, key role to play. And it's exciting. You see, it's just another example of where people can get engaged at whatever level suits them best to move forward on this agenda, to bring about change. It it really is exciting. I'm towards the end of my career, I suppose, but I try to tell my students who sometimes express despair at the state of the world that they've inherited that it's hard to think of a generation, if you like, in modern times, which wasn't confronting what very much appeared to be horrendous problems, whether that was the generation just before the First World War, the generation just before the Great Depression, the generation before the Second World War, the generation that I was born into where the threat of nuclear war hung over our heads. I mean, we've all had huge challenges. And so that's not the problem. The problem is what do we now do to respond? That's very true. And our generation definitely has that huge looming responsibility to try to make something out of all the past generations have left us and and our my specifically Justin and I's generation are looking at an economy that's increasingly bleak and increasingly uh, lacking of just opportunities in, in the current sense of the word. So as children are coming into school and, and grade school, middle school, at high school, 
is it a responsibility of the teachers to implement these ideas and implement these different philosophies of the ones we've been talking about for the last hour into the education system? Most of the things that they teach now are part of a classical model of education, of a, of a model that does not blend itself well to these ideas. Do we need to start early? What is the best age to start with these ideas? As with all of the major institutions in our society, they all move slowly. It's not just uh, education for the junior grades. I'm in a university, and it's the same thing there. We've mentioned other institutions. They move slowly. This is a problem. But there is movement. I'm quite surprised and pleasantly surprised when I go to my grandchildren's school and I see the extent to which they are learning cooperatively. They don't sit in desks row upon row, each hiding their work from their neighbor. They sit around a table four or five at a time working on common projects. So this was completely unheard of when I was their age. So the style of learning is changing and has changed, I think, in many respects for the better. That's not to say it hasn't got a, a long way to go. In particular, I'm drawn to the role that systems learning can play, teaching people that many things that we look at are best understood if you understand the system. So I focus on the economic system, but if you're interested in education, you need to talk about the educational system and how that would change and so on. Uh, so systems thinking, the idea that there's no sort of linear relationship between cause and effect, but that an effect is also a cause and it can have an influence on the thing that first caused it. Understanding feedback and nonlinear changes, these are ideas that I think... I have a much bigger place in our educational system at all levels than they're given. But of course, starting early, starting young is great, but we can't just wait for that. We all have to be going through a process of learning and trying to gain new insights, uh, whatever age we're at. I hope even for myself, it, it's not too late to learn new things. I certainly try hard to do that. So you're right, education has a very important, very important role to play. But just to add on to that, that means bring back the arts. Bring back sport and phys ed. Don't cut these off as if they're somehow second-order considerations. These are really important to learning how to live a good life. I'm happy, very happy to see gardens being put into school playgrounds where they never before existed. Bringing students back to nature. Let's reopen the facilities that have been, many of which have been closed, where students from the urban centres were taken out into a more natural setting. I mean, there's lots and lots that we can do, and we can afford it. Just to go back to you, how you framed this question, one thing I want to point out is that young people today are living in an economy which is producing two, maybe three times as much output as when I was that age. We know how to produce things. We've got to do a better job of deciding what we produce and who gets to consume it. But we are a really productive economist. That's not our problem. That's not our problem. Where can people go to learn more about ecological economics? It's not something that is necessarily in your typical university economics department. And so how do more people start learning about this discipline? There are some organizations that are worth mentioning. There's the Center for the Advancement of a Steady State Economy. It had a very good website. It even has a, a petition on it. Thousands and thousands of people have signed it against economic growth. So some of them may be interested in that. But Cathy also opens up to a wide range of resources. There's the New Economics Institute, which also has a website and will lead people into information about ecological economics. The New Economics Institute was founded quite recently in the U.S., based very much on the New Economics Foundation in Britain, which has been around a lot longer. 
and not sure they would call themselves an ecological economics organization, but they do terrific work on many of the issues that we've discussed in this interview. And you can download their reports. And they're an NGO, and I highly recommend them. For those who are more academically inclined, there's a journal called Ecological Economics, been around since, I think, 1989, comes out 12 times a year. That's full of articles on ecological economics. If you want a textbook, there's, there's several. The one I generally like is by Herman Daly and Josh Farley called Ecological Economics. It'll be in most university libraries. And so there are a few, a few sources. I mean, anybody wants to read about how we can live without economic growth can find my book called Manager Without Growth or my colleague Tim Jackson's book, Prosperity Without Growth. Also, really, that's a very easy read, and that should give people a start anyway. Excellent. So as a very last question, it can be difficult to be that university student that sent in those hundreds of resumes with no response and has to make those college loan payments or to see those massive austerity riots across the world and to not feel a little bit scared about the state of the economy. And I'm wondering, are we really too late to implement a new economic model or a steady state economy without a real disaster? I don't think so. It's impossible to be to know if you're right or wrong about that in response to that question. We don't really know. I certainly don't know what is required in any kind of detail to make a transition from where we are now to some sort of steady state economy where we are much more in balance with, with natural systems in a way that is comparatively smooth. But I would say this, if we don't start working towards that and start moving in that kind of direction in a thoughtful and, and humane way, but instead continue to strive for economic growth, then I think that's much more likely to be a formula for disruption and disillusion and despair. And that that would be the worst alternative, not the one I would advocate. I think that we need to bring our creativity and ingenuity to work for something that, when you think about it, does make a lot more sense, even though we don't know exactly how to get there. What I think we're likely to see is some kind of mixture. In other words, crises help. What we have to hope is that the crises are not too serious, but they're serious enough to get us to change our way of thinking and acting and doing so that we kind of, if you like, bump along as we make the transition, that we don't have to experience very deep crises. Because I have to say this, it's not that hard to conceive of crises so deep that there is no way back. If we do succeed in destabilizing the climate, as many scientists think is a very real risk, that doesn't mean that having done it, we can undo it. And so we must find ways of avoiding crises of that magnitude. So I hope it's not going to be a crisis-led change. I hope that it can be more thoughtfully done than that. And I think that this kind of interview, if it's of any value at all, its value is in moving us along a little bit in that direction. So thanks for the opportunity of talking to you.
And thanks to Peter for speaking with us about ecological economics and about what our economy could potentially look like if we started moving away from growth and maybe how we could start taking some of those first steps. And I know that for some people, talking about an economy that isn't reliant on growth may seem like it's a little bit of a pie-in-the-sky discussion of something that's so unrealistic that it may never happen. But like Peter was saying, you know, maybe he's naive for saying it, but, you know, maybe we're naive for talking about it as well, because even though all of our institutions are dependent on growth and reliant on growth, and so many people have been educated on a growth paradigm, there are all of these steps, like community currencies and like focusing on metrics other than just growth that we can start moving towards and can start working on and starting to build something that will be a post-growth economy. And so maybe it isn't something that we can dismiss offhand, even though we have financial institutions with tremendous interest in the growth economy. Yeah. And I, I really liked what he said about having a thoughtfully led transition. That is an important point that we, I think we gloss over sometimes. Having the the forethought to think past the end of growth, to think past the end of a point where these items have hit the fan and and our society is rapidly changing, it needs to have a, a plan or else there's not going to be something that takes us into that next transition that, that we talk about all the time. If you're looking right in front of you, you're not going to have that thoughtfully led transition. But it is films like David Gardner's Growth Busters film that really help to bring these ideas into the forefront of the public mind and to help to get the conversation going and to get help get people thinking about the idea of a thoughtfully led transition. Yeah, and we're going to be talking with Dave Gardner about his film Growthbusters here in just a minute. But I did want to touch on one last point from speaking with Peter Victor. And I know it is really easy to get cynical about the political discussion and to say that while our politicians aren't discussing anything that has to do with reality or anything about all the problems we talk about on our show like peak oil and peak resources and peak debt, but there is a change that's underway and people in some of these organizations are starting to realize the magnitude of the challenge and even though there are reports like the IEA saying that we have enough oil in the United States to be an oil exporter and the New York Times jumps on that and says oh the United States will become the world's leading producer of oil and as you know from hearing Chris Nelder on Extra Environmentalist episode 47 that's just not going to happen for a number of reasons that we can go into perhaps in another episode in the future too if we want to break down that IEA report but even organizations like the IMF are starting to say we need to change the money system entirely. We need to get rid of this private banker-held money system and move to something that's a state-based money system. Some of the uh, suggestions that are in books like Web of Debt, which are really fascinating if you want to read about more of them. Um, and doing something like that would be just one change in the right direction to move away from the vulnerabilities of relying on the growth economy like we do right now. Um, and I've noticed a big change in how people are approaching all of this. And when I used to talk to people back in 2006 or 2007 about how growth can't go on forever and how we need to change the way money works, everyone thought, you know, oh, that was cute or maybe I was a little crazy. But now people are starting to really understand what uh, all that means. And even people like Charles Eisenstein, who have been writing about these issues for a long time, he has videos in The Guardian, and it has pieces that are going up in The Guardian. And so having that ability to talk about all of these problems in a meaningful 
eloquent and deeper way is really important. And so that's one of the things I hope that we can provide through these podcast episodes to our listening audience is to give all of you the ability to go and talk to your friends and family and who knows uh, who else may be asking about this and to describe in a realistic and meaningful way all of these challenges because people really are starting to listen. But like Peter Victor said, you know, is it going to end up being too late? Are we not going to be able to make the transition or are we going to be able to make the transition? It's too early to say and all we can do is just start making meaningful changes wherever we can. That's absolutely right, Justin. That forethought is crucial to making the narrative a reality. And one of the ways that you make a narrative reality is getting meaningful pieces of, of media out into the world and getting it played and getting it into, into everyone's thought process. And one piece of media that you and I have both recently watched and we both found a lot of value in is David Gardner's Growth Busters. And we got a chance to sit down and talk to him about his film. Dave Gardner, thanks for joining us from Colorado Springs, Colorado today. You are the director and producer and reluctant star of the film Growth Busters. I am very glad to be here. First of all, I was wondering if you could tell us what the Growth Busters movies is about and what really got you started in putting it together. Well, Growth Busters brings attention to the fact that we've outgrown the planet and it's time now to embrace the end of growth. And when I'm talking about growth, I'm talking about the scale of the human enterprise on planet Earth. That's the number of people and the amount of economic activity and consumption that we're engaged in. I really started just because I uh, was unhappy with the way my own community was behaving. I observed that my hometown of Colorado Springs was hooked on growth. We were convinced that Growth was the path to prosperity, and so in our pursuit of that growth, we were trading away environmental quality, quality of life, and even you know prosperity from our pocketbooks. We were raising our taxes, raising our utility rates, spending money, uh, investing it in in growth, thinking that we were going to get a, a you know find the pot of gold at the end of the growth rainbow. It was clear to me that we were never finding the end of the rainbow. And so I started questioning this, uh, the rationality of this behavior and uh, through a long course of events that ultimately led me to produce the film Growth Busters. So I was able to screen the film and I was wondering in the beginning, you, you're, you wake up early and you, you, head, you put on your Growth Busters gear, kind of looks like a Ghostbusters uniform, and you head down to city council where everyone is so glad to see you except for the city council who's not glad to see you is this based on real world events did you actually head down to city council and have a conversation with the people there and was everyone glad to see you when you showed up in your growth busters uniform well i did appoint myself uh, the local growth buster for my community and yes i did uh, visit city council regularly and yeah, uh, yes, you're right in surmising that uh, I was. It, I came to be not very welcome. Uh, they weren't really glad to see me when I showed up uh, because I was 
pretty boldly telling them the truth, which which they didn't want to know. I was the, the guy who stood up and said, the emperor has no clothes. But I do have to confess, I did not don my Growthbusters outfit when I went down there. I, I, I wish I had had been courageous enough to do that. It would have probably been pretty funny. And may, maybe I'll yet do that. But I just uh, wore my civilian attire when I showed up in council chambers. There's still more opportunities to wear the Growthbusters outfit. How did you put that thing together? What inspired you to, to do that uh, outfit. Well, you know, I it didn't dawn on me right away that I would be going down that road when I uh, the title for the film Growthbusters came to me. That that was clear to me that that just seemed like the perfect name because the the guys in the in the Ghostbusters film were uh, scientists who would help to rid a community of of their ghosts. And as a Growthbuster, I'm trying to help my rid my community of this pesky growth problem uh, to get my community into a, re- a recovery program from growth addiction. But it didn't dawn on me right away that I might uh, actually take that uh, ball and run with it a little bit further and do something so cheesy as to, you know, create a backpack just like the Ghostbusters had and wear the wear the coveralls. But um, as I worked on the film, it became pretty clear to me that I needed an element of humor because, you know, we're really talking about the survival of our civilization. We're facing the biggest challenge we've ever faced and the most important question we've ever had to answer, which is how do we become a sustainable civilization? Do we behave uh, in, in such a way that we can actually still be here 50 years from now, 200 years from now, a uh, uh, thousand years from now? So, so that's pretty that's pretty big stuff. And so we needed a little humor to to break that up. And so putting on that outfit provides that provides that humor, helps people kind of make the connection. And we've had a, a, a lot of fun with it. But I have to tell you, in 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 working on the film, of course, I became more and more convinced that I needed to, you know, to walk the talk. I changed my lifestyle to to reduce my consumption as much as possible. Uh, make my footprint smaller. And so when I decided to make the backpack, I knew that I couldn't just go out and buy a bunch of new products. I didn't want it to have a huge footprint. So I uh, was determined to make that backpack just out of found items. So most of the things I used to make that backpack were just things in my garage. Uh, and including a cardboard box, which was the the basic foundation of it. And um, that box has, doesn't travel well. It's been to Australia, it's been to New York, it's been to Washington, D.C., and uh, it's not holding up very well. Now, I want to ask you about the items in your backpack, but first I wanted to, to uh, comment on the point you made about humor. Uh, here on this show, we're described a lot about, a lot as uh, we have all the all the doom without the gloom. You know, we talk about these really heavy issues, but we try to have a little bit of a, a lighter spin to them. Can you talk a little bit more about how humor has helped you to educate people and the role that it plays in your film? I don't know. There's something about when, when someone laughs that they we lose a few of the barriers and people are a little bit more receptive. You know, I picked a tough subject to uh, enlighten people about the, the fact that we can't continue this binge that we've been on for the last 200 years, it's pretty stark news for a lot of people. So even humor, <laughs> humor is not enough. <laughs> uh, I'm still looking for something even more magical to, to help me break down the, uh, the resistance to, to that message. It is a tough, tough thing for people to wrap their heads around. And especially tough in Colorado Springs because you guys have seen so much growth over the years, but you've been talking about the drawbacks of economic growth and 
uh, Colorado Springs was featured in This American Life a few months ago. I don't know if you heard it, but it was about some of the issues and the ways that the town has responded now that growth has stalled out. Do you uh, you find that the, maybe the city council members that you've been going and speaking to over the years are starting to say, hey, maybe that Dave Gardner has been right, that growth can't go on forever, or are they taking a different response? No, I'm afraid uh, that... Uh T-Rex and Brontosaurus and Stegosaurus are uh, are taking a different approach. Uh, Colorado Springs is a uh, very conservative community, and uh, so all of our elected officials, or almost all almost all of them, are conservative as well, and they are stuck. They are stuck in the last century, and and they can't even imagine the something called the end of growth. When I stand before them and speak to them about this, or when I have coffee or lunch or breakfast with them and chat with them about this, I can see the look in their eyes and it's like, I might as well be speaking Latin. Uh, it really is such a foreign concept to them. So they look at the uh, the challenges uh, that the city has been facing, really, it looks to them like the challenges have just been since the recession, since home building came to a halt. Uh, all of a sudden, now we can't balance the budget. We, uh, you know, we can't uh, fund mass transit. We can't water the parks. We, uh, we can't even uh, pick up trash in the parks. There's been all these things that the national news has covered, and and we've actually kind of wound our way out of a few of these. But there was actually a time when we housed prisoners in a tent, uh, even in the you know even in the cold of winter, our prisoners, uh, our jail was a tent because we couldn't afford to expand the jail or uh, rehabilitate the the old jail. Um, wow. And so they they see all of this as uh, being caused by the uh, you know the fact that we haven't had growth, but the, but but they're blind to the fact that all of this was happening uh, developing long before the housing bubble burst. We had a huge boom during the 90s and early earlier in this century. And all along during that boom, we were struggling to balance the budget. We were building up huge infrastructure backlogs. All of this was building to a head, and it just sort of happened to to be the perfect storm that uh, that, that hit about the time that the housing bus- bubble burst. But that doesn't help them. Uh, it makes it too easy for them to see the lack of growth as the problem. So we were talking about Colorado Springs, and I heard that in Colorado Springs, there's actually some issues with even keeping the lights on. You were just mentioning the prisoners housed in the tent. Um, have you guys fixed the lighting issues? Yeah, the prisoners are no longer in the tent, and the street lights are back on. Uh, but the town is uh, is still on a, on quite an austerity kick. We've laid off a number of employees, and they're still looking for for more ways to come up with a way to balance the budget. And we've got a huge, we've got a billion dollar infrastructure backlog and no hope for dealing with that. So I kind of wanted to talk about uh, your experience that you have when you talk to people about these ideas. I was actually talking to one of my coworkers today and we were talking about these ideas of degrowth and in particular the ideas and thoughts of Julius Shore who uh, says that we all have a monopoly on jobs right now. The people that have jobs kind of have a monopoly on on them. And then if we all worked less, you know, a few days a week, week less, we could share our jobs a little bit. We could end unemployment as we know it in this country. Now, this is just one way of, of dealing with this idea. But he told me that when I had a family and I had kids, I had people depending on me, I would understand what it means to have money coming in and what it means to, you know, have a, a house that you need to pay for and have all this responsibility. You have to go to work every single day just to 
make sure your kids have food. Is this the way that most people react to you? Is there is there like that knee-jerk reaction, that emotional reaction that you get often when you bring up these ideas? Oh, absolutely. And, and you brought up a great subject. Uh, you know, I'm a great out-of-the-box thinker. I don't know why I was, you know, maybe it was a blessing, maybe it was a curse, but most people think inside the box and they, they can't step out uh, of their own environment enough to, to really see the view, say, from 20,000 or 40,000 feet. And, you know, let, let's do that for a second, if you will, with me. If you really step back and look at that, uh, we have over 7 billion people on the planet. Can the planet really support 7 billion people working 40 or 50 hours a week and spending all of that income? Because number one, to have a job, a job has a footprint. You're converting resources, you're burning fuel, you're using electricity, you know, in order to to make a living. So there's a, an ecological impact to that, a cost to the environment. And then you take those earnings and, and you become a consumer. And there's a, a, a cost to that. Uh, every product that you buy has to be, uh, is, you know, resources from the planet that are converted and energy is consumed in the process of, of manufacturing and shipping those. And energy is consumed and, and the emissions result from you going on vacation, you know, in, in Mexico or, or wherever you might go. And today, only about a billion people on the planet live high on the hog like we do and actually do all of that. So there's a huge number of people on the planet that aren't doing this yet. In fact, about 3 billion people are scraping by on less than $2.50 a day. But they're working on catching up. And, you know, they're, they're entitled to, uh, to want to live a good life, too. Uh, and we're seeing them catching up. You know, the, there's a growing middle class in China, and China China's economy is going to be larger than the U.S. Uh, very shortly. And that is all. And we're now seeing, you know, the results. The planet is really pushing back, and the environment is really almost crumbling. You have to say when you look at all the all the evidence of overshoot. And we're not even anywhere close to all seven billion people working and and living like we are in the U.S. So it's pretty clear that that we can't do that. We can't. The, the earth would just collapse if we had 7 billion people doing that. So if we want to be fair uh, to the people around the planet, and we also want to be fair to our kids and, and their kids, we really do need to figure out a way to consume less. And that means work less. Uh, but spend less. I sort of backed into this lesson accidentally by producing this film because I was forced to become a starving artist. I could not raise enough money to produce this film and pay myself a living wage while I while I did the film. So I I starved. I every year I had to look at new ways to to reduce my expenses. And lo and behold, I discovered that that meant my footprint on the planet was smaller and smaller. I was consuming less. I was becoming much more efficient and throwing a lot less away and and I wasn't going off to the mall. I mean, I would I went several years without ever setting foot in a shopping mall. Can you believe that? But I, you know, kind of stumbled across this idea that, you know, if you work less, your uh, your work footprint will be smaller, but you also won't even have the resources to overconsume. Uh, and that might sound like you know you're paying some kind of a penalty, and it's a painful uh, adjustment, and you're giving something up. But but that's only the case if you are kind of stuck in that box and you're not really looking at what you're doing. Most of us are have given up a lot to be consumers. We work way too much. We we much most of us would gladly trade some of those working hours for a real life, 
a chance to really know your kids, a chance to sit on the front porch and watch a thunderstorm roll in, uh, just to hold hands with your wife or your husband. You know, we gave up so much to become consumers that if we if we can find a way to work less and, and spend less, we actually can reclaim the, the good stuff that we gave up, the things that you really will wish you had spent more time doing when you're on your deathbed. Uh, but the problem is, uh, besides for most of us, it's difficult for us to imagine that. Uh, most of us are also leveraged to the hilt. We've, you know, we've been in this high consumption system for so long that you can't just flip a switch and say, I'm going to work 20 hours a week. I'm going to share my job with one of those unemployed people, which is, I think, what we need to be doing. But you can't do that if you uh, have a huge mortgage and car payments and college for the kids and, and all of that. Uh, so so you, we all need to be making adjustments to get uh, unplugged from that system, to get out of debt, to scale back our lives so that we can afford to do that. And then the joy uh, is going to be tremendous. I I can tell you because I'm living it today. No, I believe you. And and that was what I was trying to get across to him, the fact that maybe he doesn't need to be working. And I asked him, in fact, I said, what do you think you would be doing if you were not working right now? What would you do if you only had to work three days a week? And he just had this blank stare on his face. He kind of looked at me. He's like, I don't know, man. If you talk about this kind of stuff at work, people are going to, you're not going to be in a job for very long. <laughs> It's hard for people who are who have been brought up in this culture, you know, through all the schooling that people go through. The it's hard for people to let go of these ideas that that they don't need those things. That all they really do need is you know spending time with the things that they love, finding the passion that they that they do, so very much need. Absolutely, and you know, I forgive everyone who is struggling with that for struggling with that because I, you know, I am in on that journey just like everyone else. I might be a little farther down that road than. Uh, the next guy, but uh, there's another guy or another woman out there who's way farther down the road than I am. And when we all, I just, I'm trying to encourage everyone to think about it and start down that road. It's not, it's not an easy road to go down, but it, uh, the reinforcement, the positive reinforcement is really good once it clicks in, but you're, you're right. I'm glad you brought up the, the way we're programmed. You know, we have, we're programmed from birth to be good little consumers. There's a great soundbite in Growthbusters film where this uh, uh, woman is talking on some uh, news program and she says, you can't be a good consumer if you don't have a job. I mean, think about that. <laughs> that's, our, that's our patriotic duty to go out and consume. Our, we, have a, we have a system that collapses if we're not buying stuff and throwing away stuff at a fast enough rate. And all you have to do is jump out of the box and, and look at that to know that that's crazy. So in your film, you were going around on the street and you were asking people, you know, about overpopulation. And you were saying we have billions of people on the planet and talking about ecological footprint. And a lot of the people w would just brush you off and not even care. How do you respond when that happens? Do you think there's a way that people could actually start caring about these issues? Or is there just going to be a vast segment of the population that just never really cares about ecological footprints or the fact that we're overconsuming? Well, my, my hope has been that I could find a way for growth busters to get in front of people who are pretty resistant to the to the message. Uh, but but I can't claim that I've had much success doing that. And I think I've kind of come to the realization that, you know what, there is there's such a huge number of people who are on the fence who are um, maybe a little bit more open minded than the, you know, than the ultra conservative city council member or, or someone like uh, columnist George Will at The Washington Post or 
something something like that. So so rather than beating my head against a wall trying to get through to them, I think it's we're better off to you know to work on the people who are starting to realize that you know wow things aren't going that well right now. There must be a better way. And uh, as we convert them, you know uh, you know slowly our whole society will kind of shift. It's evolutionary more than revolutionary and and we need it to to be at a faster pace unfortunately so so that's the the quandary and, and the frustration of this job. What do you say to folks who counter back to you and say, well, who am I to change the system? I mean, this system is what, what my parents were part of, what my grandparents wanted to be a part of. Who am I to, to go against all this? And, and you know, I'm a cog in the machine. That I'm getting exactly what I want out of the American dream. This is exactly what I signed up for. Why would I want to change that? Well, someone like that, uh, you know, I will work a little bit to see if I can't find some common value, uh, some place of agreement that we can start from. And in, in some cases, it's uh, a person like that really doesn't like rising taxes. So you, so I can just talk about how, uh, you know, the costs of growth are all being being foisted on you and you're not getting any of the prosperity. Only in, uh, the elite few growth profiteers profit and you're paying more in your taxes, more in your utility bills, more in your time and fuel wasted in uh, traffic congestion and you're not getting you're not getting anything wouldn't you like to see us connect the costs with the behavior think about it growth is no longer uh providing it's no longer profitable to grow like it used to be and another thing and i think this you know i haven't been able to test this to know how well it works but i will tell you that i've been on a number of conservative talk radio shows over the last couple of months and i think it's been pretty remarkable the the reception I've gotten by the end of the of the interview. In every case, I feel like I've made a new friend, which I didn't expect to do. Uh, and and maybe it's because I start with what I think is a really universal value. And in fact, you know, I start the Growthbusters movie with it, and that is, we all want good lives for our children. So I think that that idea resonates. If you talk about, uh, you know, are we leaving? Uh, enough resources for future generations to have as much chance at living a good life as we got. Uh, that's a starting point for that kind of conversation. A big part of conservative values have to do with families and with having a good life with your family. And I'm wondering about what it's like to be on conservative talk radio because I've heard a lot of very emotional uh, left and right leaning uh, talk shows. But what kind of questions were you getting? What you know were listeners calling in, like angrily saying, "Hey, you know, you're wanting to undermine the American dream." What was it like? The uh, the most frustrating pushback from listeners has just been, uh, you know, quotes from the Bible, you know, that uh, that we're supposed to do have dominion over the earth and that we're supposed to go forth and multiply. And uh, how dare you go against what's uh, what's in the Bible? And that's you know what? Uh, I don't have a good answer for that one. That's a tough one to uh, to fight. And that's really pretty uh illustrative of what I'm fighting anyway, which is, you know, the biggest religion on earth, uh, the worship of growth everlasting. So, so I was kind of prepared for the, the fact that I am going up against blind faith and there, there are no facts and logic can really trump uh, someone's worldview. They will, they will not go where you try to lead them. And, and that's why I tend to try to now focus a little bit more on people who are kind of in the middle of the road and might not be quite so dead set against it. But the questions I get from the hosts have been incredibly intelligent. They've been challenging. Uh, 
I, but I, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm answering them well because I do. You know, if, if you have good command of the facts and you have good logic and if you're questioning everlasting growth, then, then you must, <laughs> then, uh, you know, you can actually get somewhere with an intelligent person who is actually trying to, to have a real conversation. I think the biggest challenge is so much, so much of this world is not interested in having a real conversation about this. So I um I saw a a post online from somebody who kind of made sense there for a while. Uh, John Michael Greer, he's a he's a historian and a conservationist. So you know only about half of it you're gonna he believes in. The, I'm sure he believes in the electronic winter tree. But um, he says we have to come in terms of the fact that we don't have limitless energy and we don't have limitless resources and we don't have limitless time. Now he's talking in the conservation way. Um, I'm not. I I think you can read this, take it out of the the conservation idea and look at this as our life we don't have limitless energy you have limitless energy because i don't we don't have limits limitless resources i mean i thought i mean garl rove spent like he did but uh i don't think garl rove's going to be getting that kind of donation again and we don't have limitless time so now what do we do if we recognize those things we have to be somebody who Behaved like men determined to be free. This blog, again, he was going on, you know, what can we, what can we do? Uh, because, you know, things aren't sustainable. Because the UN can't take over fast enough. But he actually had some good things in it. Get ahead of it. Get yourself some space. Work through the learning curve. Pick up a skill that you're going to need. Do it now. So by the time that it's necessary, you're comfortable with it. And you know what you're doing. If you've already insulated your house, you may have a solar hot water system in place if you can afford one. You've torn up some of the grass in your back and turned it into a vegetable garden so you can stretch it out for staples. Know how to cook from scratch so you're not dependent on the vast corporate structure. Maybe you started developing some tradable skills. Maybe a little basement workshop where you're doing something you can barter with your friends. Maybe you should brew some beer in the basement. I think President Obama has that one. Now, the reason why I bring this up is I just want you to look at things differently. Look at the world differently. And realize that uh, our time frame has been shortened, I believe. But it will all work out to be uh, for the best and for the best of the country if we behave like people determined to be free. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and we're talking with Dave Gardner. And sometimes, strange things can really happen on conservative talk radio. So speaking of, speaking about religion and the worship of growth everlasting, uh, it's polling season again, and it's it's election season again. And I've been getting lots of calls from both uh, Obama supporters and uh, Romney supporters asking me who I'm planning to vote for. And because I'm registered independent, I, I guess I'm in that demographic that they really want to reach out to. These figures get up on stage. And they're they're surrounded by supporters who seem a lot like religious zealots in a lot of ways, and they and they make these grandiose speeches, 
and they say things like the fu- the great future of America is still ahead of us and the economy is going to keep on growing and everyone's going to have lots of jobs and everyone's going to be happy and that contrasts so greatly with the message that your film is coming out with but seems that people buy into these messages that these men mostly men uh talk about and and speak about how do the two add up how 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 can you have these people who are in charge of our country and making these great promises about how the growth of our country is still going to be very very paramount in the future of of this of this country and yet it doesn't really it doesn't really add up when you look at it uh, objectively you know what you give me a great idea I think I need to do a YouTube video where I do a, a stump speech and I and I deliver the stump speech of the the candidate who is bold enough and smart enough and visionary enough to actually tell the truth about this uh, actually some people had uh, suggested that I run for president and and I might have if the idea had come along early enough that we would have been able to to do some good planning. It would have made for another great movie, a much more interesting film than just running for city council. But, um, you know, I, I think I might try that exercise because the, the, the message of embracing the end of growth truly is that uh, liberating and, and that positive. Uh, but you have to get out of that trance, you know, that trance, that numbness, that uh, everybody who's a slave to the current system is so dead that they just, uh, you know, you tell them what they want to hear. They don't really get outside of the box and, and think about it. So, uh, candidates are promising us what, uh, they think we want to hear. Unfortunately, in today's environment, no one could be elected or reelected if they told the truth that they're, that we're at the end of growth, uh, and things are going to be different. Uh, we need a, we need a Martin Luther King, uh, caliber of person to be able to deliver that message and really lead us to the to the really the real promised land, not the promised land of Wall Street and uh, you know private jets and and, and all that. Um, so, but I think before we can ever get to that point, we might have to be the leaders ourselves. We have to start changing our lives in our communities so that we can show the candidates and the elected officials that uh, that they have our permission to start telling the truth, that they have our permission not to promise or try to deliver endless growth. The fact is they're not going to, you know, it doesn't matter which candidate we elect, they're not going to be able to deliver on their promise because I am 100% certain we are at the end of growth. The planet has said enough. You uh, You actually went into overshoot three decades ago and it, you just cannot continue what you're doing. But four years from now, we're going to be, unfortunately, I think we're going to be right here all over again because we we may not have realized yet that we're at the end of growth. You know, my 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 quest is to get the word out uh, as quickly as possible so that as a society we can stop wasting our time and resources trying to get back on that on that horse because that horse is dead. And if we're right here where we are now, that may be one of the more optimistic scenarios about how the next few years go. But you actually ran for city council in Colorado Springs. And what did you learn about that process of running for office? And did it give you any insights into the electoral process in municipal politics in America? You know, it was a painful thing to do because I was in the middle of making this film and I didn't have time. And I, I decided at the last minute just because of the 
state of emergency in my community. So it was kind of a rough uh, period for me. And yet I am so glad that I did it because it, I was shocked at what I learned from, from going through that experience. I, I've always been disappointed in, uh, in politicians for the, the spin, for, for avoiding the, the issues, for not answering the questions that you ask. Uh, for for it seems like they're always telling you what what they think you want to hear and st- instead of telling you the truth, and and I and I don't like that about our system. And I was convinced. In fact, I said when I decided to run, I told my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, can't believe she stuck with me through all that. Uh, I told her, I said, I'm only running if if I can be 100% to, true to my principles. Now, my election committee told me you can't get elected. If you if if that is your your if your message is that we can't grow anymore, and I said, well, I'm only willing to do this if I can, you know, make that a part of the the platform. So we argued a lot about that, but I, uh, but I went in uh, highly principled, uh, committed to doing that, and yet what I found was uh, every time I walked into a room to to talk to a group as a candidate, I wanted that group to like me. <laughs> you know that I was really surprised at how strong that was. You know, I wanted to win the election, even though it was pretty unlikely that I, that I could win. I wanted to win. And I was, I was really pulled to, you know, to modify my message, you know, to spin things a little bit in order to make each group like me. On top of that, I had this group of people working to, uh, to get me elected and some people donating money to get me elected. And I, I felt an obligation. I said, I, I can't, I said to myself, Dave, you can't waste their effort. You can't waste their money, you know, essentially by being true to your principles. I was, there was a, a tug of war going on and uh, that surprised me because I thought I was going to be the, maybe the first candidate in the history of U.S. politics to actually stick to their principles. Now I know why the system, you know, corrupts almost everybody. <laughs> you know, you need mo- you need money and you need supporters to get elected, and that corrupts you from the get go. It's a set of challenges that you don't really understand until you run for office. And I was wondering, did you get to participate in debates with the other candidates? And did you ever face a crowd and get booed or have tomatoes or eggs thrown at you? No, I never did uh, face a. A uh, hostile crowd that really showed the hostility. I definitely did have to go into the lion's den uh, because this is a uh, is such a conservative community, uh, and I was complimented by even some of the people who strongly disagreed with me. They they complimented me for being so honest when I when I was in the the lion's den. Uh, the debates, the for the forums were great. It was a little frustrating that I couldn't really get a serious debate scheduled. The you know the candidate that I was running against the incumbent, uh, he knew that that was what I wanted, that I really wanted to, to have a, you know, serious discussion of these issues that he, you know, he knew he wasn't going to be able to, to out debate me because we'd been sparring enough over, over the years. So he knew to avoid that. And, um, another frustration there was the, the media. I thought that at the very least I would be able to 
get some good media coverage uh, and 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 uh, of the issues that I was bringing up, and therefore get the public conversation going about the costs of growth uh, and where is the prosperity from growth here locally. And the media uh, ignored me a, a lot more than I thought they would. It's the same way here in Vancouver. We had some degrowth candidates in our local elections, and they actually did fairly well. Cumulatively, got almost as many as the candidate that actually got elected for city council. But in the same scenario, they got no media coverage, essentially, and couldn't really spark a discussion. But the one thing that they could do is in debates that they were able to participate in, they were wildly popular because they could do one thing the traditional candidates could not, and that's talk about the truth of the situation. And that really gives you an edge. Did you did you find yourself pandering to the crowd at all? I mean, you said you, you felt like you had to make you you felt the need to make them like you. Did you find yourself actually saying things that made them like you? Well, I felt the struggle. I don't think I fell too low (laughs) on that. I probably, uh, there were probably a few occasions where I didn't say something that I, you know, should have said, but I don't think I outright changed uh, anything that I did say. You know, I even went in, I had, I had meeting with the, uh, the chamber of commerce, you know, they were trying to decide who, uh, which candidate they were going to endorse. And of course, I think they, they knew. <laughs> they, they extended me the courtesy of inviting me to come in and, and talk with them. But, you know, I got the same kind of looks from them as I did from the, when I talked to city council. They, I might as well have been speaking Latin. I think I did pretty well in the, in the principal category. But I, but I was shocked at how much of a struggle it was. Do you suppose that candidate Obama you know, going into the election four years ago, last election cycle, had that same kind of idea where he was he was saying, oh, I'm going to try to do all these things. And then when he actually got into power and he got all the donations from the lobbyists and got all the donations from the, the third party, the outside powers that give him, give him money, and he didn't, he didn't want to let down his, his uh, supporters in the same way? I, I believe so. You know, I you know can't say with any certainty, but after going through the experience on a small scale that I did, I can see exactly how it happened. That, I mean, just think of the responsibility. You know, and I ha- I'm sure he had a lot of people daily, and even today has a lot of people daily reminding him of the responsibility. You know, the the party he represents wants to have a president. You know, wants to have a sitting president, and uh, they want to you know to have. Uh, majority in the House and Senate. And so there has got to be tremendous pressure on him to, uh, you know, to make some sacrifices, to be pragmatic. And uh, I think that's, that's sad. You know, there's, you know, sometimes it's hard to govern without compromising, but there are some times and some issues that really require people to, to take a stand for what's right. And I, you know, I think there's been evidence that President Barack Obama, uh, as the candidate, knew uh, and had better intentions about climate change policy. Uh, my gosh, his science advisors, John Holdren, who together with Paul Ehrlich uh, decades ago came up with the IPAP formula, you know, that John Holdren's got to be telling Barack Obama the truth every chance he gets about uh, about climate change and pro- and hopefully about growth and economic growth. But, you know, he's got to, you know, Obama has a responsibility to his party and to all those donors, unfortunately. 
right? And so many of the challenges we face today in society have to do with the level of political dialogue that's that's going on. And so are there countries or political parties in other countries that you're seeing that are starting to talk about no growth strategies? Or do you have any insights about how it could actually be part of the political discussion in the future? I'm so glad you asked that question because I was uh, stunned to to discover one, there may be there may be others, but I suspect that this may be the first one. Australia, which is featured a little bit in the the film, just because the Australians have been having fairly active dialogue about population growth, particularly, uh, they actually have a new political party that's about two years old now called the Stable Population Party, uh, and uh, I was thrilled to. <laughs> I mean, that's talk about bold. Uh, I think it's really, in a way, that's great branding because people know <laughs> what you stand for. There's no, there can be no question about it. It, it may be, uh, in fact, I was in Australia for uh, the Australian premiere of Growthbusters, and so I got to talk to a lot of Australians about that. And a lot of people, their reaction was, "Well, geez, those guys are nuts. They're never going to get anywhere. You know, they they sound like a one." Uh, one issue party, and uh, they've got to be broader than that. And and that may very well be true, but I have to applaud anyone who uh, stands up and tells the truth. Any any other insights from your trip to Australia of examples of how they're addressing the end of growth? Well, there was an interesting news item uh, just today or yesterday about one of their elected officials talking about the fact that their big run on uh, on commodities uh, might be over, that, that that Australia might even feel a little bit of the hit of the global recession. Australia has been pretty immune to the recession, largely because they have huge mining industry and they and they provide a lot of raw materials to to China, which has been been booming. And uh, the bloom looks like it might be off of that rose, which would be really would be great news. Oh, you know what I think impresses me about the Australians is that they're they're more honest in their uh, their news reporting, they're more honest in their public debate than than the United States because they've got that British uh, influence, and the British are more honest than we are. The United States, uh, and I want, I am a keen observer of the the news media because I really like to kind of keep tabs on the the pro growth Kool Aid that we keep serving ourselves. It's really not enjoyable, so I shouldn't say I like to do it, but it's my job. I feel like to keep my eye on that. But like George Will and and those guys. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the United States, I don't know what it is about people in the U.S., but we are masters at beating around the bush. And in Australia, they cut right to the chase or a lot more to the chase. So so they have for years been having a much more honest and public conversation about uh, about population growth in Australia. And uh, most of the population growth in Australia uh, comes from migration, from immigration, from other from other countries, and immigration in the United States is a really tough subject to to talk about. It's the kind of the, the third rail in in a, in a lot of venues. I guess it's not necessarily for the Republican Party, but for me, you know, I I speak very seldom about immigration because it you can't have a good conversation about it in five minutes. People jump to too many conclusions about it. I noticed in Australia, there's not it's not as poisonous. To talk about that, they're they're more willing to discuss. Well, you know how many, you know what should be, what should our quotas be? Should we adjust our quotas? Uh, and 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 someone who has that conversation isn't immediately labeled a, a racist or or a xenophobe. And I and I applaud that because I know there are a lot of people who believe a country needs to be accountable accountable 
for its footprint, and that means accountable for having a sustainable population. Uh, and they're not coming at it from a racist or a or a xenophobic perspective. They're coming at it from just you know saying we need some accountability somewhere. And so uh, I'm impressed that Australia is able to have that conversation. Uh, it's still a str- it's still a struggle. There's uh, the growth profiteers in Australia are pushing very hard to convince the people that they call it populate and prosper. We need more people uh, to grow our economy, even though, you know, when you think about it, you know, an economy only needs to be big enough to serve the the number of people that are in it. And in your film, you show a whole bunch of examples of how population growth is kind of promoted by world governments. And um, when we were up in Montreal, uh, I think you actually gave away some wrap with care, save a polar bear uh, contraception that kind of tried to educate people that about this about this issue what was the reaction when you gave out those um those condoms yeah I, I gave away the condoms because they were provided by the center for biological diversity and i really uh, applaud that nonprofit organization in the united states for actually talking openly about the fact that popu- human population growth is a leading cause of species extinction i mean we just came got finished talking about how uh, immigration is a poisonous issue. It, you know, it's even tough to talk about uh, population growth, and most environmental groups won't even address population growth for some reason. Center for Biological Diversity is willing to do it, and they actually sent me a box of endangered species condoms. I've actually now given away probably five or six boxes of those because even though I certainly, when I did that on the streets of Colorado Springs and we and we filmed it, I ran into a number of people who, you know, ran away from from me and didn't want to talk about it or get them. At the at the movie screenings, the response is extremely positive. People really love getting the the condoms. They think it's a great campaign, and and uh, I think they honestly plan to go home and put them to good use. <laughs> um, speaking speaking of condoms and putting them to use, we'll wrap up here. And uh, <laughs> sorry, Seth. Seth made me say that pun. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Wrap it up. Huh? Wrap it I, up. I, appear to, I apologize to anyone who hears that. But anyways, as, as a last question, I wanted to ask how the film has been received um, and maybe how it's been received differently by different audiences in various countries. And then if you could close us out by uh, letting us know how our listeners can see the film and find out more and support the project. You know, the film has been out since November. So that's a, a fairly long time. And I really thought that it would hit big and then die fast, uh, being a little bit inexperienced at releasing feature films. This is my first feature film. Uh, what I've learned is that, you know what, to someone who doesn't know about the film, uh, it's new today, no matter how long it's been out. So the film has continued to build in popularity. The uh, We sell copies of the film on our website at growthbusters.org. You can order the film. And uh, the orders have held up uh, month after month after month, surprising even the the company that uh, that duplicates the DVDs. They've just been shocked at how busy I've been keeping them. Um, but I, another real good piece of news is that uh, I'm now getting more and more calls and emails from organizations that are putting on events and they want to show the film. So the, the, the word is getting out there and the film is building in popularity. And, and I was contacted just today by a festival, a film festival that doesn't run until next January. And they want to run, they want to run the film. And I thought it would be old news by then, but they don't see it that way. So it's building and that's important because uh, it doesn't have a 
traditional theatrical release. You know, when you question the very fundamentals of your capitalist growth-obsessed system, you can't expect the uh, the big corporate interests to to want to distribute the movie and show it in their movie theaters. So going yeah, in. you don't really get picked up by Fox 21st Century Distribution. No. No, and not even by <laughs> not even be by PBS. And I knew, uh, you know, in fact, in our trailer we have a uh, a thing that says it's not polite enough for PBS, uh, too hot for Sundance. And uh, you know, I knew going in that there were going to be, you know, even Sundance and PBS would would shy would be scared to to run this film. So uh, we've been relying on what we call a hybrid distribution model, where people who believe this message needs to get out there. Uh, go to our website. They order the film. We support them in organizing a screening. They show it in their local library or the basement of their church or community center. And it's been screened uh, all around the world. Uh, a group in Taiwan actually even translated it and helped us get uh, get get it captioned in Hanji Chinese so that they could show it uh, all, all over Taiwan. Uh, it's been seen in Six cities in Germany uh, shown by a film festival and a big festival in New Zealand, uh, every capital city in Australia. So, uh, you know, it, it's 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 not huge because we're not getting in front of millions of people. It's it's just one person at a time. But we're making progress. Growthbusters.org. You can order the film, but you can also click on the screening and event schedule to see if someone else in your area is already planning to screen the film. If they're not, then I ask you to, you know, order the film and uh, and let us know that you want to organize a screening. We'll we'll help you. We have a guide that you can download that helps you set up your screening. And uh, I even do interviews with newspapers in your community and radio stations to help you fill the seats. And I definitely recommend that you check out Dave Gardner's film, Growth Busters. He gives a good introduction for people on how our growth-based economy isn't sustainable and what it's like to run for office in Colorado Springs and face up against so much uh, pro-growth boosterism. But I think what's interesting in talking about the political problem in a place like the United States where there are so many political conversations that are completely diluted and, and lost, it's the same way in Canada too. We have a lot of the same problems going on in Ottawa. But what I like in talking to Dave is he really highlights the dynamic that politicians face where you have people who are donors and you go in and you speak in front of groups and you intrinsically think in advance that you're not going to try and cater or pander to them. But then you have so many people backing you that you don't want to let down and then you end up finding this uh, this dilemma where if you want to get elected, you have to be able to speak to people. But if you want to be able to speak to people, you can't come in and say, we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet and, and all of these economic problems are coming down and we're really screwed here. There's this dynamic that politicians face. And in many ways, they are monsters that we've created. We can criticize them and tell them you know, that we think they're stupid. But 
they're just reflections of our own inner psychological state as a collective consciousness. Because one, many people haven't really participated in the political system in a meaningful way, especially in the United States. There's been a massive decay in the democratic process. Barack Obama here in 2012 got 9 million fewer votes than he got in 2008. And Mitt Romney got 2.5 million fewer votes than John McCain got in 2008. And that just shows you how many people are checking out because they feel disenfranchised. But they feel disenfranchised because as voter decay happened in the past and fewer people voted, it made it easier for corporations and crazy politicians to hijack the process even further. So it's a feedback loop. So more people check out because this feedback loop rolls on. But I don't know what you think, Seth. Do politicians get trapped in this dynamic? Are they monsters that we create? That's absolutely right, Justin. Politicians are as much a part of the system as any part of the system that exists already. They all wear the same uniforms. They all say the same kind of things. They get up on in front of large crowds and, and they kiss babies and they shake hands. They've kind of become a characters of themselves. And anyone that doesn't fit, any politician that doesn't fit, with that model is kind of put on the on the side and they're and they're shunted to the to the side and, and no one really pays attention to them. We've seen in this past uh, election here uh, how candidates such as Ron Paul are just you know they're they're, they're not even given really much credit and when the credit that they are given is just very small and marginally marginally distributed among a whole lot of extreme sides. You look at somebody like Vermin Supreme who ran for some kind of I think he ran for a state senate or something like that. He wears a large boot on his head and the five ties and 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 says that everyone should have a, a pony and and that tooth care should be nationalized right he's basically a satire he's making a, making a satire of all politicians and you know he's he's pretty funny and he but he says some things that just make you think like hey he's a politician and, and he's saying things that don't really fit with the formula that's so strange he's so well spoken though what what do i do and i think that humor really plays a lot a large part in kind of poking fun at power and i think that that is a large part of what David Gardner's film does is uses humor as a tool to kind of turn around and say, hey, look at the system. Look at what you're doing here. And maybe this is not really the best way. Maybe this is not the only way. And I think that is an important, important point to make is that during these election seasons, it's important to remember that Democrat and Republican are not the only ways of thinking. It's not the only way that people can go around leading governments and doing business. For thousands of years, people have organized themselves in ways that have not been along these Democrat-Republican lines. And you know, what I hate most, Justin, is when somebody says to me, well, it's the lesser of two evils. You know, I have to vote because it's the lesser of two evils. And I say, the lesser of two evils, but you're still voting for evil. Does that not... It hurts me when people say that because it's like they know that they're, they're, it's wrong, but at the same time, they're still voting for the wrong thing. I think that for a lot of people, they just don't know alternatives or they haven't questioned the system enough to find alternatives. But also the two main parties, whether consciously or unconsciously, I think, have kind of seen their decline and seen maybe how far out of touch with the main population that they really are and have put in a lot of legal barriers that make it extremely difficult for third-party candidates to get on the ballot for president or for Congress. And so it's extremely hard to have that third party enter into the discussion that's bringing in fresh or new ideas. One of the reasons I'm not very 
optimistic about the U.S. political scene is is quite simply that dynamic. And I think that in countries like Canada or many of the countries in Western Europe that are parliamentary democracies, you have the ability to get some parties that are bringing some new ideas in because let's say if you have the party that Dave Gardner was talking about in Australia uh, that was promoting a sustainable population, if that party starts to change the rhetoric and change the dialogue, they can actually win some seats and then build a coalition with one of the ruling parties and get their ideas on the ballot. And even though, in all honesty, it takes an extremely long time for something like that to happen, and I think a lot of the changes that are coming down the pipeline are moving a lot faster than that dynamic can even play out, at least it is a possibility, whereas the two major parties in the U.S. really rule it out. But you never know. People like Elizabeth Warren are getting elected who are very vocal supporters of the Occupy movement, so maybe it is possible to change the system from the inside. But uh, I'm highly skeptical of that approach, and so for now we'll keep working on changing the system from the outside. But I wanted to get back to something that Peter Victor said about the limits to growth study and about the severity of the dynamic that's really playing out with the global economy. He said that back in 1972, they forecasted you know multiple runs uh, with this model for the limits to growth. And we're essentially on the standard run that collapses in like 2030, 2040, 2050. And we're not talking about like financial collapse. We're talking about flat out die off, like billions of people dying. And it's really shocking to think about all the innovation in computer technology and communications technology that has gone on in the last few decades. And almost none of that has contributed to uh, macro scale efficiency or lower energy and materials use. We're really on that pathway to collapse. And it really puts in perspective the gravity and the immensity of the situation. And so I definitely agree with Peter Victor in saying that in a an economy that's not growing, you have to be more innovative. And so it's entirely our generation that's going to figure out what that model of innovation looks like. That's right. We have to be the fourth thinkers and the ones thinking ahead so that we can be the ones to lay the, tra- the tracks and the groundwork for the rest of humanity. Justin, what skill are you developing that's going to help out in this economy? Well, I've been developing a number of skills, Seth, like brewing and learning more about fermentation. And a lot of those hobbies pop up on this show. But In addition to all of those things, you and I have been working on developing uh, dialogue on some of these issues through the podcast, and hopefully it's reaching out to people in a meaningful way. We hear from people all around the world who talk about how they really appreciate these interviews in the, that we're doing in this podcast. And some of you have even appreciated it so much that you've decided to contribute your hard-earned money. And for a way of saying thanks, we send out stickers and t-shirts and bonus content, and even though we've been a little slow at sending out some of those things recently, it's on the way. If you've donated and you haven't received it yet, we just got a new round of t-shirts in. We've been trying to figure out the printing to make sure that our colors look exactly right. But we also now have tax-deductible nonprofit status in the U.S., and so we can even give you tax deductions as well. And so, Seth, who has been donating to the show recently? 
That's right, Justin. Look at my list here, and we have a lot of great listeners who send in some dollars. Todd out in Montana sent in some money. Thank you so much, Todd. And we also heard from Christine out in Oregon. Wow, thanks, Christine. Really appreciate that. We were also very fortunate to receive donations from Lucas in the Northern Territories in Australia and Kevin in Connecticut. So thanks to all of you for donating. And so we'll be sending out stickers, T-shirts, and bonus content very soon. And like I mentioned, we've been a little slow at sending that out, but it's been a really busy month. Seth came out to visit me in Vancouver, and we talked about some of the plans for the educational content that we plan to develop and to celebrate. I got laryngitis and also successfully defended my master's thesis on materials in solar cells and non-renewable resources in solar cells. That's right, Justin. You did you did get laryngitis, which, which really uh, put a crimp in our live recording in Vancouver. But luckily, we have this amazing Skype connection that allows us to talk to each other. I just wanted to make a quick note and say that if you like media and you think that media is something that you should support, especially the media that is unfunded like the extra environmentalist, I mean, you pay money for your cable channel, you pay money for your satellite dishes and your internet, why not throw a few bucks to the extra environmentalist? We don't usually plug ourselves too much, but during this giving time of the Christmas spirit, why not throw a few dollars to the extra environmentalist, make their Christmas a little bit brighter so that we can bring you a few more episodes, make this stuff even better, and make it so that you can listen to the content that you love. And if you're in the U.S. staring down that fiscal cliff and your hedge fund manager is giving you a call and saying that you're about to lose a lot of money when the tax codes change on January the 1st, 2013, well, we have a nonprofit structure that you can use to dump some of that money towards something that will actually contribute in a meaningful way to developing a post-growth economy. And you can donate to our nonprofit here at The Extra Environmentalist. So if your grandma needs to put somebody into her will to make that make sure those that money doesn't get split up among all of her grandchildren, she just wants to make it go to one good cause, The Extra Environmentalist is here for you. Also, if you want to join the conversation about all things Extra Environmentalist, head over to our website, www.extraenvironmentalist.com. Talk to us on our Facebook page where we've been putting all sorts of links, tons of pictures, tons of interesting videos, as well as comments from listeners just like you. Facebook is the place to be for that. The Twitter page is always a fun place to find the up-and-coming news information that the Extra Environmentalist puts out between episodes. So X Environmental is your Twitter handle. Make sure to follow us on Twitter. And also, if you're really excited about the Extra Environmentalist and you want to be part of the show next time, throw us a voicemail. We have an online voicemail box that loves to receive calls day or night anywhere in the world. And Justin, what is that number for the folks out there? And if you do want to reach the Extra Environmentalist by phone, you can give us a call at plus one nine one nine seven zero one nine eight seven two, or you can hop online at www.extraenvironmentalist.com and click the Skype button on the right-hand side of the page. Or if you're using Skype, just search for the Extra Environmentalist. And though we do enjoy getting emails, we enjoy voicemails even more and we have some great voicemails and some great listener feedback that we will get into on the next episode we've been talking for way too much today but before we go i did want to mention that all those donations that we receive we put right back into the show it's not beer money for us it's actually money to buy better audio gear and ship it to places kevin our editor he went to the the northwest permaculture convergence here in the pacific northwest and finally we're going to do a really fantastic show on permaculture thanks to his amazing audio recording skills and also a longtime listener and friend 
friend of the show, David, in Vermont, went to the Biophysical Economics Conference and recorded some great audio there. So we'll have some interviews and content from that conference headed your way in the very near future. And in addition to Kevin and David, we also wanted to thank Catherine, who took our Extra Environmentalist shirts to New Heights, and Kat in New York City, who on Twitter made a great list for you to follow if you want to track some of the topics that we talk about on the show. And you can follow that at www.twitter.com slash csposito slash xenvironmental. And it's a really cool list that tracks all the activities of our guests on the show as a great way to say thanks. So thanks to Kat and Kat in New York City. That's right, Justin. I always love seeing the Extra Environmentalist shirts going to all new heights. That really makes me feel excited. And for all you Extra Environmentalist listeners out there who are enjoying this cold weather, look out for super storms and drink Ethiopian blended coffee. Jose Mujica is a real handyman about the house. He's not a man that enjoys a life of luxury and most of the time is accompanied by his loyalist friend, Manuela, a three-legged dog. But Jose Mujica is also the president of Uruguay and has been dubbed by the international media as the poorest president in the world. The house of the president of Uruguay it is located just outside the capital of the country, Montevideo, in this rural area, just next to small farmers. This is a place that contrasts so much that it is only guarded by these two police officers who are just outside the house. This is quite a contrast from the lifestyle of many world leaders. They say I am the poor president. No, I am not a poor president. Poor people are those who always want more and more, those who never have enough of anything. Those are the poor, because they are in a never-ending cycle and they won't ever have enough time in their lives. I choose this austere lifestyle. I choose not to have too many belongings, so I have time to live how I want to live. In President Mujica's latest official declaration of wealth, he says he owns just two vehicles, a small amount of property and his farmhouse. He also donates 90% of the salary, $12,000 a month, to charity. When world leaders talk about sustainable development, what is that growth based on? It's based on pushing people into mass consumption. But then you face an economic crisis like the one we see today. He had a landslide victory for the presidency more than two years ago. After half a term in power, he is now back in a bill to legalize the use of cannabis. Latest opinion polls show that his approval rating has fallen below 50% for the first time since he took power. The man he defeated in the 2010 election Former President Luis Lacalle accuses him of wasting a favorable economic climate. If you look at the power he had and the potential he had, today, halfway through Mujica's term in office, we can say that his administration has not been as good as it should have been. But back at his farm, the president is happy to just tend to his garden and his crops. 
And despite his fall in popularity, he says he remains true to what he believes and hopes that perhaps one day other world leaders might follow his example. On the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we're speaking with Chris Ryan, author of the book Sex at Dawn, about the cultural institution of marriage and early human sexuality. There's a quote we use in the book from Arthur Miller, the playwright who was married to Marilyn Monroe for a while. Uh, He said that an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. And I think what's happening in North America and one of the things that we've been fortunate about with the book, I think that's made the book uh, more popular than it may have been otherwise, is that we're at a tipping point in North America where people are finally starting to see that this happily ever after vision of marriage is not working. It's not accurate. As you started with the divorce rates are amazing. If we had airplanes, if one out of every two airplanes fell out of the sky for unexplained reasons, I think we'd be redesigning the airplanes, right? Instead of saying, no, no, this is the way God intended airplanes to be built and we're just going to keep building them this way and, you know, we'll just make it harder to survive a crash with these anti-divorce laws and all this stuff. The reaction is insane. season of the Real Housewives of New York, the ladies are swept up by a hurricane of passion, desire, and sustained 80 mile an hour winds. Oh, Michelle, I can't believe you made a candlelight dinner for me. Now you f***ing bitch, the power's out. We'll find out if all these hot flashes are just old age or excess greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Mandy, oh my god, the chauffeur couldn't even come today. So I had to stand in line for three hours just to get gas. After all that standing in line, maybe if you bought those shoes I told you to, your bunions wouldn't look like your flabby ass. You bits. Sandy is blowing so hard out there. I can't believe all the trees are falling down. Oh my god, I heard from Marie last night that she was blowing your husband way hotter than anything you can see out the window right now. Oh my god, Robert, I can't believe he's cheating on me. That f***ing bitch, he's a Oh my god, is that a knock on the door? Who is it? Looking through this peephole, it's police officers. Did you order strippers, Stacy? So exciting. Ma'am, this building was being evacuated. Please exit in an orderly fashion. Oh my god, strippers are so exciting. Take your pants off. Ma'am, this is a citywide mandatory emergency evacuation. You need to leave right away. I love it when they talk forceful, don't you, Mandy? Oh my god, Stacy, your pantry's like practically empty. What are you doing? I heard about this Sandy Beach diet that came around just as soon as those just-in-time delivery services went away. I can't buy anything at the supermarket, I can't get any gas from my vehicle, and I can't even turn the lights on, so I'm losing pounds like crazy. It's fantastic! Ooh, tell me more. I haven't seen you in that skirt since college. I thought this FEMA camp would be terrible, but we have so much wine, it's passing the time so quickly. Those FEMA clothes are so last season, I can't believe you're wearing them. Ah, f*** you, you bitch. Oh, 
you shut up, bitch. Go drink some more of that Vima wine. I saw one of my friends wearing the same thing at Katrina. That's so last season. All that and more on the next season of The Real Housewives of New York.